You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Nineteen fifteen, in the cold Atlantic waters off of Ireland, SMU twenty eight surfaced astern of the Iberian, like the dorsal fin of a predatory fish cutting through the waves. The command tower of the submarine, the black, white, and red pennant of the Kaiserlich Marine, fluttering damply atop it, rose from the choppy murk of the Atlantic Ocean. Nine miles due west of Fastnet Rock, on the extreme southwest coast of Ireland. And the Iberian was entirely alone in the Great Green Sea, save for the glistening hulk of the infamous German sea wolf on her tail. It was a beautiful summer's day at the end of July, and there was not a cloud in the eggshell blue sky above them, the sun pouring down onto the waves which merrily refracted the bright light. Were this any other day, the scene could have been beautiful. But this was 1915, and the world was at war. Already the prow of the submarine was seen seething with the bodies of sailors, rushing to man the gun deck and turning their sights onto the fleeing English steamer. Commander Gunther von Forstner, already at this early stage in the war, considered an ace by his empire, and as ruthlessly efficient as he was just, stood atop the command tower his jaw firmly set, and with his field glasses pressed to his eyes. He had been watching the Iberian through the periscope moments before, the English vessel unaware that the Great War had caught up with them, and he had given the order to surface. They would conserve their torpedoes and sink the little steamer, ferrying its cargo of cellulose to the natural port of Boston, United States, with their gun deck. By his side, watching the distant ship only dimly began to realize that the German raider was upon them, stood First Lieutenant Diekmann, Engineer Romus, Helmsman Parsch, and Seaman Bartels and Mass. Von Forstner gave the curt, monosyllabic order, and the gun deck barked flame in response. The shells closed at a distance of 6,000 meters in mere seconds. The Iberian, brave and unarmed vessel that she was, began to zigzag desperately in a panicked attempt to avoid the plunging ordinance. The deck gun fired 11 times. Incredibly, for the first nine shots, the English steamer managed to weave between the hails of shells, but its luck could not last. The final two shells struck home. Fire broke out almost immediately, and the German captain watched as a thick black smoke began to belch forth from the ventilators and funnels of the crippled Iberian. The crew were already abandoning the ship, throwing themselves into the sea and winching down the lifeboats as U-28 began to close in on its dying quarry. Von Forstner could see that four men lay dead, sprawled across the deck, and that between 70 and 80 men had managed to escape to the lifeboats. As the burning Iberian slunk lower into the water, the German U-boat captain ordered his submarine to advance on the survivors. The captain was ruthless in battle, but he was honorable in victory. 
He knew there would be wounded men who had escaped the sinking ship, but would require immediate medical attention. And so before his submarine would submerge and stock new shipping lanes, he would ensure the worst of the wounded English would receive bandages for their burns. The Iberian vanished swiftly into the churning waters in an on-rushing cloud of steam, her bow at last despairingly disappearing, and nothing was left on the surface but debris and the floating forms of men. All of this is true, and all of this happened. But what happened next has been the source of debate for over 100 years. On that bright and sunny day in 1915, a leviathan from ancient fable and deep prehistory was launched into the air about 25 seconds after the bow of the sinking ship had vanished below the waves. What this creature was has been the subject of speculation for decades and an epic addition to the canon of sea monster lore. Which makes us wonder what might still exist in the depths of the Atlantic and beyond. Welcome to Monstrous Military Encounters Part 3, Terrors of the Depths. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And welcome back into the portal, your gateway to the bazaar. <laughs> yes, indeed. Welcome back, everyone, to part three in our series, which we weren't even sure if it was going to go past a second part, but here we are at a part three and possibly even a part four oh, on the way. Yeah, yeah. Not going to hate ourselves, though. <laughs> yeah, not going <laughs> to, as, as Amber says to me, five times a day, every single day. Basically. So here we are, though. <laughs> Military sea monster encounters is what we're diving into today, if you haven't uh, gleaned that from the epic introduction that was written by Nicholas Cox. So he did such a great job of that, we ended up asking him to use it for the introduction today and uh oh so brilliant awesome i love it it was like i think i say it during the interview but it's spellbinding yes it just really transports you it definitely sets the stage for all the things we're going to talk about today and nick is of course joining us uh, shortly here on the show but before we jump right into things we wanted to touch on a tiny bit of housekeeping i know we haven't been doing this off the top of the show you guys but we have so so much to get into with this episode we wanted to just mention these things right off the bat so we have some new patreon supporters oh, oh my goodness. god thank you guys so so much so starting so with generous. jimmy g what's up jimmy g over jimmy in the uk i believe uh he's joined us as a curious creature so amazing thank you so much jimmy for supporting the show and listening to us during lockdown that's uh i'm glad we've been able to keep you company mm-hmm. also we have jeff g couple of G's here. <laughs> Jeff G, he's joined us as an ancient explorer. Uh, and at this level, of course, you get even more exclusive content. And uh, so Jeff, thank you so much That's for so joining awesome. us. Just on the note of the Jeffs and the Jimmys. <laughs> yeah. So funny. I was just immediately reminded of Jimmy Jr. from Bob's Burgers. Bob's, yeah. And also Jeff from Superstore. <laughs> 
Yeah. Both, both brilliant characters, though. We've, we've been doing our own lockdown binging this past year, yeah. if you guys haven't uh, Exactly. <laughs> so we don't know that. what you two look like, but I'm just picturing those two characters. There we go. <laughs> two of our favorite characters. <laughs> and then last but not least, absolutely not least, we have Nightwing. What a badass name. Nightwing oh, has joined us as a producer of the show, along with Adam K and Stanley C uh, in our current team of production on uh, Patreon. So shout out to Nightwing. Thank you so, so much for joining us. This is amazing. And uh, we, we honestly couldn't do this without all of you guys, um, our, our producers and our Patreon supporters, and of course, everyone listening to the show. So thank you all so much. Stay tuned. So much more to come on Patreon. The link is in the show yeah, notes below. Including coming up next would be our Black Eyed Kids Theories episode, yes. which is just getting juicier and juicier oh, yes. by the day. But, <laughs> but Black Eyed Kids, absent from this episode, <laughs> let's jump into... The case of the Iberian, because this is the crux of the episode we're focusing on today, and of course, what you guys have gathered from the introduction, this was, this was a pretty dramatic event in the First World War, early days of the First World War. So we have the Iberian, an attack by German U-boat U-28 on July 30th of 1915, and this has definitely gone down in history as this classic sea monster case in in so many different ways. It's been reviewed and discussed by the likes of, you know, characters we've mentioned before, like Bernard Huevelmans, the, uh, oh my gosh, uh, where was he from again? From the Netherlands, I believe he was Dutch, I think. But uh, one of the founding founders of cryptozoology and and sort of strange (laughs) zoology in many ways. A founding founder. Hmm? A a founding, I was going to say. He's up there with Charles Ford. He's like the founding father of cryptozoology. Yeah, Yeah, he is up there with Charles Ford in a lot of ways for the monster side. Yeah, for Mm. for the monster side of things. So, This is the environment we're going back to, the dark, cold Atlantic waters of the First World War. And I wanted to set the stage a little bit more for you guys for what this was actually like. So I pulled some information from the Canadian War Museum archives just to kind of paint a better picture of like why this happened, this situation of the Iberian, right? So in February 1915, we had German U-boats beginning to attack all merchant vessels in British waters. And most of the time, these U-boats allowed the crews of ships to actually disembark before their vessels were sunk. And interestingly, I found out that this was done usually by gun uh, gunfire on the decks and not actually torpedoes because obviously U-boats carried a limited number of torpedoes. And then they would often take prisoners of war as well, which is what we have in this, this first account. But this would change and get much more grim, which really began more or less on the 7th of May, 1915, when the now definitely famous civilian ocean liner that everyone out there is going to know, the Lusitania, was hit and sunk by a German U-boat, resulting in just under 1,200 casualties. Definitely not not so nice. And much of these were Americans as well. Right, yeah. There were some Canadians on board. I think there was a little connection even to around here. Yeah. Or was it the island? But yeah, it was, it was shocking for the world. It was... Them, the Germans announcing total warfare, nothing was off limits. Right. And this more or less was the formal entry of the United States or one of the main reasons for them entering the war, obviously, which was like definitely not what the Germans wanted. Maybe you shouldn't have sunk the Lusitania uh, <laughs> if you really wanted to to do. What was the what was it? The Schlieffen plan, the full sweep in the First World War? I think things so, what yeah. they were trying to do and mm-hmm. many other things. That was the first few months, at least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is a quote I pulled from the Canadian War Museum archives because I just thought it was interesting. This new cautious policy did not result in enough ships being sunk. U-boat attacks intensified, although Germany still feared bringing the United States into the war. A year of intermittent attacks combined with confusing self-imposed rules by the German Admiralty on U-boats that required them to surface when confronting large liners in order to determine nationality proved cumbersome and dangerous dangerous to U-boats. 
boats. So this is just sort of a weird, like they're trying to figure out the how to go about U-boat warfare, which is kind of kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so basically you have, sorry, the German high command that was ordering to desist in attacking these merchant vessels, Mm -hmm. but they weren't getting enough done. So there was kind of like a weird, ambiguous zone there. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And they really didn't want to get the Americans involved, but they still wanted to kind of take down as much as they could. So yeah, kind of a rock and a hard place there for for the German U-boat captains. Don't shoot the wrong guy, but shoot more guys. Yeah, that actually, that would be confusing, hey, because you have world powers that aren't yet involved, but you, yeah, you don't want to taunt them into getting involved but how do you actually determine what's what from such a distance right right oh man that, that would be tough it would and they yeah. were indeed very successful with their u-boat campaign so just to give people a perspective here in december of 1916 the british parliament stated that they had just over 20 million tons worth of naval vessels essentially wow. i don't know how you're you're measuring it in tonnage yes. but within the first three months of the war Roughly 1.1 million tons of British shipping actually sunk to the bottom via U-boat attacks. So, yeah, super, super, super dark stuff going on in these Atlantic waters. So there's a lot of sub-activity, which brings us, of course, to this first incident in 1915. Mm -hmm. That's a good way of teeing it up because... It was unprecedented, the amount of human activity that was occurring in and under the surface of our world's oceans. And like we so eloquently, or Nick so eloquently wrote, and that we introduced <laughs> at the very get-go, uh, we're, we're talking about a clear, sunny day. This is July. It's summer. Yep. Um, we have two ships, or sorry, a U-boat and a ship involved in this. The British steamship, the SS Iberian, mm-hmm. which was again spotted by the German U-boat that was sneaking in areas southwest off the coast of Fastnet Rock. And this is in and around the Ireland area. Yes, the southern tip of Ireland. The southern tip. Oh, yes. Uh, So basically, yeah, like we've kind of touched on this or we're going to touch on it more with Nick too, but the Iberian was actually just a cargo ship. So it was built about 15 years prior. And at the time of the incident, it was bound from Manchester to Boston. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. But of course, this was a short-lived trip Mm. as the Iberian was torpedoed and sunk off the coast of Ireland by the German submarine U-28. History shows us officially that SMU-28 was under the command of the focus of our episode today, Freiherr George Gunther von Forstner, (laughs) who was the one who ordered the fire upon the British steamship. Right. So this was no standard attack. Four reasons we'll get into. Yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like Andrew said, uh, basically what happened was the the Iberian was torpedoed, correct? Mm -hmm. But they did, obviously, they surfaced, they waited for everyone to unboard and then basically did the honorable thing by taking on the British that had survived the attack. I think yes. they said in the account there was six or seven men that were dead on the on the actual like surface of right. the boat, but everyone right. else basically managed to get away. Mm-hmm. So again, th- all is very hunky-dory, like, you know, very, I guess, business as usual for the war until we get this secondary explosion yeah. that sends something completely mysterious skyrocketing up out of the depths into the skies of the Atlantic. Yes. And this is something that, again, if you look at this 
account in isolation, it seems so fantastical, everything about it, but then we're actually going to introduce some other stuff too that helps contextualize it. And obviously our friend Nick that we've brought back on for today's episode does a really good job of helping us do that. Absolutely. So we wanted to get into uh, some of the translations that Nick has managed to do, and he mm-hmm. has. We're talking to the veritable preeminent scholar on the story of U-28 because he actually has in his possession the original source in which Forstner described this encounter. Yes. So we're not going to the piecemeal accounts that are from the internet and things like that that have been torn apart and argued over for years and years. We're just going straight to the source. Right. Which I love. And let's talk a little bit about what Von Forstner had to say uh, about the explosion specifically. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and I just, it's so cool that he was able to find that book in like a thrift shop in Bavaria or something, right? So, so awesome. I know. It's amazing. I mean, you have to be specifically of that mind to notice a book like that. It would probably be very unassuming. Yeah. You know, not look like much. And of course, it's got these epic sea monster accounts in it. So, yeah, Nick has done an amazing job translating this. So, we wanted to get specifically to a few of the quotes from the sea captain here. So, this one is definitely a good one to start with. So here's what uh, von Forstner had to say about the explosion specifically. Based on the reports coming out of Loch Ness, I published in the Deutsch Allgemeine Zeitung, nice. best attempt I can do, <laughs> at the end of 1933, the description of an animal estimated to be 20 meters long, which I and part of the crew of the submarine U-28, which was under my command at the time, saw on July 30th, 1915 in the Atlantic Ocean about 60 nautical miles due south of Fastnet Rock, which is on the southwest corner of Ireland. It was sighted after the sinking of the English steamer Iberian. This animal was thrown from the water about 20 to 30 meters into the air by an underwater detonation about 25 seconds after the aforementioned ship sank. It is possible that this detonation, which was not too strong, was caused by an explosive charge that was carried in the vessel's hold, which was hidden from us in the ship's documents, or by a small boiler explosion, since the blown boilers could no longer have held high pressure. But in my opinion, this detonation could just as likely have been due to the bursting of the ship's cabins and bulkheads, which were blown up by air pressure as the vessel rapidly sank into deeper water. The approximately 20 meter long animal had a crocodile-like shape two front and rear legs with strong swimming fins and a long head tapered towards the front. This is the monster that was rocketed out of the water from this explosion. So we have a, an image down here that was a, a, a sketch done later on that we're going to share with you guys, of course, mm-hmm. and discuss in detail with Nick as well. But this is the account, and that was latched onto, like we said off the top, by the likes of Huevelmans, who in 1968 published only, he published something based off of only partial translations at the time, and stated that, in you know, corroborated or whatever, you know, acknowledged um, Fosner's account that six crew members of the U-28 did witness this gigantic sea creature that looked something like a monster-sized crocodile, we're going to get into what that could be in the ancient world, was shot out of the water. 60 to 100 feet, if we're talking feet versus meters. So, bizarre. What do you what do you make of this right off the top here, Amber? I mean, we're we're crocodile, North Atlantic. Yeah, I know. Off, off the, you know, like it's. Uh, There's a lot of points uh, for and against this uh, even being a thing at all, like being true. If you want to believe any of this, <laughs> and we we get into a lot of that when we're uh, discussing it with Nick. But I will say right off the bat, what really shocked me was the actual amount yeah the height the amount yeah the height that it was propelled out of the water especially since he does make the point of saying that 
the detonation was not too strong. So I don't know if he's just saying it wasn't too strong as in the sense that it affected the U-boat that was nearby. Right. Or like, you know what I mean? But that seems to me to be a pretty big explosion to You'd rocket think. something that big. Because he describes it as what, like 20 feet tall? Yeah. Or 20, sorry, 20 meters long. So he kind of goes to and from meters and feet Actually, no, he doesn't. We do. We do. We do. <laughs> and other articles do around the internet, I guess. Yeah. But no, like that to me is like a 20 meter long animal. That's a huge animal. That's large. It's gargantuan. I mean, like, that is you're massive. going to that word, eh? You're going gargantuan. Yes. I, okay. Are you kidding All me? Right. That definitely deserves that. Well, another part of this too is that uh, Von Fossner stated that the observation time of the creature was about 10 to 15 seconds. That to me is kind of confusing too because I'm like, okay, so it gets rocketed out of the water. That has to be a minimum of like two seconds maybe four tops kind of thing yeah one, and then it's just two. it's writhing on the surface maybe and then kind goes of like, back down and then just sinks like that's kind of right. what i picture but then um just to play devil's advocate here if it's getting rocketed out of the water that far uh you know like it's it's mm-hmm. what is it newton's laws of physics like you know what goes <laughs> up must come down and it'll go down like an equal or what is that thing where it's like basically the bounce effect like you know when you drop a ball and then it has sure. like a third of the distance up and then it'll you know what i mean like it doesn't actually quite go to the same distance but it would sink down physicist chris in here you're asking the wrong person exactly yeah but i'm just thinking like it wouldn't just sit on the surface of the water so unless it landed on debris that's my only um, thing to help him in that regard. What do you think, though? What are your initial thoughts? Man, I mean, I'm most interested by the, I mean, obviously, again, I can't wait to, for you guys to listen to the discussion we have with Nick that's coming up shortly here. But for me, it's the sketch after the fact that is so fascinating because that's what we have to analyze. And also the fact that there's a real seaboat captain, a real German yeah. captain that comes out with this account. The sketch was made after the fact. This is actually a quote from von Forstner. Forstner rather, as well. So I'm just going to go ahead and read this because this is interesting. The sketch made by our chief engineer, marine engineer, Romus, that's his last name, Romius? Oh, mm-hmm. God, I suck at pronouncing names. Okay. The, the, marine, the chief engineer that made the sketch immediately after the animal disappeared again in the water. Observation time of the creature was about 10 to 15 seconds from 150 to 100 meters distance in bright sunshine with the help of strong field glasses. So they're looking through binoculars essentially to see this thing as well. And after exchanging our mutual observations, I reproduced in number six of that same magazine that I struggled to pronounce a second ago, published on February 10th, 1934, at the request of the editorial staff on this book. I agreed to a new drawing that was requested for publication reasons that, though it is a new illustration, nothing of the animal's body itself has been changed from the original sketch, which is essentially a crocodile being rocketed out of the water, which is what we're going to share with you guys. Yeah. So there's various other cryptozoologists, if you will. There's zoologists at the time and just scientists and researchers that are also trying to corroborate what he possibly saw. And of course, this is in the context of the 1930s and the rise of the discovery of the Loch Ness Monster, which we talk about with Nick. But what we've done here, too, is that we've brought two other stories into this episode that we wanted to give you guys. We wanted to share with you guys to try to piece together what the hell is going on here. Mm. Are they some context? Some context. Mm -hmm. So this next case, case number two, we're calling it, which we will also discuss with Nick, is on the HMS Coreopsis II. And this happened on April 30th of 1918, so several years later. And the question is, could what have happened at the Iberian attack 
be corroborated with other sea monsters. It's a little bit different in this account, but equally as strange. So let's get into it. The HMS Coryopsis II, this is a sloop ship, so it's essentially built as a, uh, a transport vessel but with a few guns mounted on top, and it was built under the Emergency Royal Navy program um, a little later in the war. So she was a young ship. It wasn't like the Iberian built a decade and a half earlier or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Built in the shipyards of the Barclay Curl and the Cleeside in the UK. That's, oh my gosh, that's my, these names, these European <laughs> names for places, which was launched in September of 1917. And it was employed as a decoy ship. I don't know how thrilled I would be to be a, a sailor on a ship known as a decoy ship. Yeah. Concealed, you know, had concealed armaments on it. A and, decoy for what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to look like it's not that threatening, obviously, but guess, it's just like, yeah. that's, yeah, you're still, you're asking for trouble, right? <laughs> but this ship, like the Iberian, would run into some troubles off the coast of Ireland. So on the 30th of September 1918, the British vessel, the Coriopsis II, was operating off the coast and was, you know, this type of ship that looked very much just like a transport vessel, but it had these equipped guns, like I said. So it was actually out there looking for German subs, while German subs were all too eager to attack it, not looking all that scary at, at the same time too, right? So this is how the tale goes. The British crew came across a German U-boat that was mysteriously floundering in the water. This is now the famous UB-85. And they described it as surfaced and struggling. That, you know, in other words, it had been immobilized, but was still partially operational and was sort of limping on the surface, clearly having been attacked by something mm -hmm. and left in distress. Mm -hmm. So the Coryopsis approaches the vessel, which clearly isn't any threat at this point, and the crew and the captain of this U-boat, the U-85, are already on deck, ready and eagerly accepting their defeat and to be taken aboard the Coryopsis as POWs, essentially. The UB-85 was under the command of this guy with an epic name. I don't even know if I'm going to attempt the first part, but Gunther Kretsch. That's just a villain's name if I ever heard one. I think his uh, the first thing there was actually just a title. It's oh, Capitan Lieutenant. Oh, Capitan. Is that where that... Capitan Lieutenant. Capitan. It's like basically Captain Lieutenant. Okay, there you go. Captain... <laughs> He's both. Germanicized. Right. Man, the Germans like to mash words together, don't they? I, honestly, though, that's just what it looks like to me just <laughs> right. seeing it, but I could be totally wrong. So Gunther Kretsch. Let's just roll with that because it's badass. The captain was taken aboard and, you know, obviously would undergo interrogation because he's captured as a POW. And he, they're, they're asking about information on other U-boats in the area and things like this. But rather than spill details of military secrets, the story goes that the captain, clearly terrified by what had just happened to them, would recount events, the events that brought them to the surface. And it wasn't an attack from an allied vessel, a British vessel. He would relay a most incredible and terrifying encounter. Kretsch explained that several hours before they had been spotted on the surface, in the darkness of the previous night, U-85 had surfaced in order to charge its batteries, which at first I was like, that doesn't make sense. But I look into it and U-boats at this time did need to do that uh, every two or three hours, I think it said, to, to actually charge their batteries. Mm -hmm. So it was a good evening to do this and there was no immediate threats in the area. And it had been calm, quiet all evening. Of course, this would all change uh, as a heavy impact was felt directly below the U-boat. It was reported in the captain's tale that it was as if something other than a torpedo was essentially attempting to rock the vessel from below. So before they could make any maneuvers at all, the now 
mortified crew who had gathered on deck to try to catch a glimpse of what might be in the water, knowing that it wasn't some sort of another submarine at this point. As they looked out, what happened happened next, I wrote in here, is basically something right out of a Gojira or a Godzilla movie. <laughs> because a massive, strange monster monster surfaced right next to the submarine. Its size was difficult to estimate in the water and in the darkness, but it was later described as having a small, bony head and large set of teeth, sounding something like a plesiosaur almost to me. So, oh my God, like what, what do you do in this situation, right? I mean, this is, this is not <laughs> ideal. So like so many sea monster accounts before over the centuries, right? The Kraken comes mm. to mind. This particular creature was none too pleased with the U-boat's presence in this particular area, and the captain relayed that the crew were terrified for their lives, obviously, as this sea monster, as it was put, began to violently thrash at the submarine and lurched up onto the actual starboard bow of the U-boat. And Kretsch would go on to say, after a brief hesitation as this happened, the whole crew, their jaws drop, and they start opening fire. That's basically their only means of getting rid of this thing and in the aftermath after this creature slopes you know slouches off back into the sea they realize that they've sustained significant damage from this bizarre attack enough that they can't actually dive anymore so they are discovered by none other than the choreopsies too hmm. and the question we're left with at the end of all this is is this just an internet tale is this just another yarn from the first world war because there's not a ton to go off of and we're going to talk about that with nick but of course we know that the Iberian wasn't in the sense that we did have a real U-boat captain relay in the story. Mm -hmm. Very, very strange, to say the least. Very spooky. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely like poop your pants territory. <laughs> yeah, if you're if you're on the deck of that U-boat, that's for sure. That's an understatement, Amber, I would say. And I think that's the first time you've used that phrase on the show. Maybe. That is poop your pants territory. It is. I would be doing that. Case number three is also Yes, so we have not one, not two, but three of these amazing stories. And this one actually brings us a little bit further up in the timeline. So we're going back to World War II as opposed to World War One, as yes. the first two accounts were. And this is another attack, this time, however, not in the North Atlantic waters, but in the Pacific. So what we have here is a different story in a different ocean, but it still ultimately leads us to ask the same question. Is there some kind of population of undiscovered monsters lurking in the depths of our world's ocean? Yes. So, of course, um, this account has even less to go off of than the first two, especially the second one that we just relayed. But we wanted to bring this up because there are a lot of similarities in this report. And the story goes that the crew aboard one Japanese scout ship, unnamed, in an undisclosed location in the Pacific, were traveling along in what was called a routine mission. They were traveling during the night, when seemingly out of nowhere, the ship was struck by something they could not explain. One crewman described it how a surge of water erupted off the side of the ship, as if something was surfacing quickly from the depths. Mm. Then there was an impact that struck them violently. Something had rammed the front of the hall. The crew rushed over to catch a glimpse of what this might be, and as they peered over the side, they saw what appeared to be 
a large gray mass in the water. Mm -hmm. It was described as over 50 feet long with leathery skin, a dorsal fin, and what was described as the head of an alligator. Interesting. Something also described was a white underbelly. Hmm. Hmm. Must have flipped over in the water. They got a sight of the underbelly there. That's interesting, especially during the night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the account goes on to say that the creature rammed the vessel repeatedly, circling back only to ram it again and again. After multiple impacts, the ship began to shift over to one side and sort of sloop into the water, and the crew was panicked in the dark. They had nothing else to do but open fire. Hmm. It did seem to work, unlike with our giants of Guadalcanal. (laughs) Yes. And whatever it was that had attacked them sunk back into the depths of the water. However, much like the case of the U-85 sea monster, there was so much damage to their ship that they were forced to abandon it and go back. Yeah. So that's the three cases we have for you guys today. So we've got the head of a crocodile once again. Yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, Different ocean, but again, there are some similarities in in the accounts. And we're talking wartime again. And it's fun going back to the Japanese and the Pacific just to kind of uh, pay homage to our last episode we (laughs) Uh, did. Yes, indeed. But this is what we're dealing with. So we have an amazing discussion we're going to get into with our friend, Nick. And yeah, we'll dive into some of our own thoughts and theories afterward as well, Andrew. Definitely. I think, honestly, that's a perfect segue. Let's jump right into our conversation with Nick. Let's do it. All right. Well, joining us again on the show this week is none other than Nicholas Cox. Thank you so much for coming back on, buddy. Thank you. It is great to be back, guys. Uh, once again, <laughs> and hopefully I'll be here many more times, but it is great to be invited back for round two. Oh, absolutely. You're definitely you're going to be uh, coming back more than more than twice, for sure. Exactly. And uh, I love that we're transitioning from the jungles to the ocean, the oceans this week, mm-hmm. and looking at very, very different creatures than we were discussing with you uh, in the last episode. Okay. So... We wanted to honestly just pass this over to you right away because you've done this awesome translation of the account of the Iberian and the attack from U-28, the captain, Von Fosner, and uh, there's so much we want to get into with this, but I'm just going to pass it off to you right away because we've introed the story to our listeners, but I just wanted to get your thoughts initially when you started to look into this. Like, What was your initial interest with this? I know you're into Second World War, but just talk talk about the Iberian a little bit. So I was first introduced to this story in a graphic novel series called Cathago. And if anyone likes cryptozoology, they should read Cathago. It's a really great graphic novel series that deals with what I realized. uh, They sort of take historical cryptid accounts and then work them into fictional narratives. And there is about a two page spread in one of their stories that without any text just features a German U-boat in the First World War firing and sinking another vessel and in the explosion of the ship being hit a huge marine reptile they draw a pliosaur which is a species of prehistoric uh, reptile from the cretaceous period being launched into the air and that was it that's really all that happens in this scene and but it's mentioned later in the book that this is the account of the u-28 and feeling curious to see if this was true i looked into it and discovered that indeed there is a real, as real as these stories can be, a real account of a German sea captain who during an engagement with a an English vessel out in the Atlantic off the southwest coast of uh, Ireland, uh, during a military engagement, they 
quite by chance, it seems, encountered uh, a cryptid, a animal that is otherwise relegated to fable and fantasy, a creature that is prehistoric, except for this story. And as I did a little bit more digging, other stories like that from both the First and the Second World War. And of course, sea serpent stories are famous, but stories of the sea serpents in the 20th century, the ones that come up during the war, they start to get more specific. There starts to be more scientific interest in trying to justify what these creatures are. So it starts to get really interesting when you start to read the discussions. And what I found so interesting is I managed to get a hold of an original transcript of the memoir written by this German captain, Georg Gunther, Georg Gunther Freiherr von Forstner, commander of U-28. He wrote a number of articles in the 1930s for various magazines about his experience. He, he didn't mention his experience for about 20 years, 18 years exactly after mm -hmm. the war, after it happened. But then he starts to publish these articles. And the first few articles were published in paperback magazines and it's really difficult to find any existing copy of these earlier magazines but then he started to gain a little bit of fame being the german sea captain who encountered this mysterious entity and we'll get into what it was in a moment uh, so in 1935 he was actually approached by a former british military officer commander gould who suggested that he should this is von forstner should translate gould's writing on sea serpents into a German edition and, and von Forster should write both an introduction and a first chapter of this German translation where he recounts his own experience and engages a little bit of speculation and discussion as to what this creature could have been. And the story isn't famous. It's not a very popular story. It's not really talked about much today outside of this rather niche graphic novel that mentions it on two pages and a few blog posts here and there online and a stub, I think, on a Wikipedia page. There's really nothing that ever acknowledges that there was this encounter with a sea monster in 1915 right. during the attack on the Iberian. But being able to get a hold of the original book, which I'm holding in my hands now, which is really exciting. It's published in 1935. It smells old feels old it's really exciting you know every there's like someone with a pencil has circled certain passages and paragraphs some point in the last 80 years and i'm like who was this person that was circling it i don't know i found it in a secondhand shop here in southern germany so i don't know where this book's Very been cool. but being able to get a hold of this is really i have come as close as i possibly could to the original source material discussing this and i thought it would be you know, in the interests of cryptozoology going forward, to actually have a a completely translated version of this. So I decided I was going to translate von Forstner's introduction and first chapter because there are some translated passages that float around the internet, but the, the translations vary depending on who was translating them. And often they all come from one or two or three sources and people extrapolate and handpick the different passages because again cryptozoology is something that people will love to argue over and people really get into the nitty-gritty of like translation errors when it comes to this and no one apparently has ever seen an original copy of the text they're just arguing about stuff on the internet so i thought right to cut through the chaff and actually get the original book and so that's what led me to learning about the story of commander von forstner that's awesome. That's uh, that's awesome. I mean, it's so cool to actually find the the nineteen thirty sorry thirty three is what you said was published, right? So this book was in nineteen thirty five. His first 35. account was nineteen thirty three. 
Right, in... right. That's super cool. I've got the names of all the magazines he published in, but I will struggle to pronounce them without prior warning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you definitely would do a better job than us. We're notorious for mispronouncing things. Yeah, on Into I wasn't going to try. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably <laughs> for the best. You know, I, I think... I mean, I definitely want to, I mean, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I am so wanting to get into the actual description of the creature because it is just that bizarre. And my first introduction to this was from the uh, Bernard Huevelman's translation or just a few excerpts from from, uh, the account that he talked about in the 30s. But again, like you said, these were just sort of like excerpts from the internet. They're not they're not the same as other translations you see on different uh, websites and different things like that. So I'm really glad that you got your hands on this. But do you mm. want to talk a little bit about the creature itself? Because what we have here, I mean, what I have pulled up in front of me is just the one sentence from, from the translation that says, the approximately 20 meter long animal had a crocodile-like shape, two front and two rear legs with strong swimming fins and a long head that tapered towards the front. So let's talk about the actual description of the creature and what do you make of this? So... Right off the bat, it's very different to descriptions of sea serpents, which the German, the German word for sea serpent is Zeeschlange, which literally translates to sea snake. Sea snakes do exist. They're not particularly exciting. Well, I mean, they are exciting. All animals are exciting, but they're not monstrous sea snakes, that is. But traditional descriptions of sea serpents and the monstrous sea snake, you know, they're often long wormy looking creatures Mm -hmm. and so it's really interesting and then of course in the 1930s there is the Loch Ness monster and that introduces this idea that this starts making people think that maybe it's not a totally unknown creature maybe it's something that's known to science from the fossil record but it it, but it's not been seen for the last 65 million years and people start with the Loch Ness monster talking about plesiosaurs Yes, yes but then the von Forstner description right off the bat it's not a sea snake but it's also not a plesiosaur either I mean the plesiosaur has a, you know, it's barrel-shaped body, it's big fins, and it's incredibly long neck. Mm-hmm. And what von Forstner describes is some kind of, he calls it uh, a marine crocodilian. And that's what he and his crew, because there were a few other men on the bridge, on the um, command tower that saw this through, the, uh, by, through their binoculars. And they all agreed that this was some kind of marine crocodile. Uh, now, I have some reasons why it couldn't probably be a true crocodile but i do find that description very interesting because right off the bat it's going against what was at the time the commonly understood image of a sea monster it was something new and it's something that for me seems incredibly primeval it is something that the moment i read that description i thought i can already envisage what kind of prehistoric animal would fit this in a way that you know sea serpents in their medieval kind of description don't really have any any counterpart in the animal world or in the prehistoric animal world, but this creature does. So right away, I sort of looked at this and I thought, this sounds like one of those incredible marine reptiles that prowled the world's oceans up until the uh, KPG extinction event 65 million years ago. So I've got a few possible candidates, which we can get into shortly, but I definitely felt this was something different already. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. It's interesting that like, yeah, the Mm. literal German translation, like sea snake. And that's what, I mean, the the later translations from von Fossner and what he was looking into the work from uh, Gould, he ends up talking a lot about sea snakes and a lot about sea serpents and different sort of creatures. Amber pointed that out. He's like, Mm -hmm. she's like, you know, this, this doesn't sound at all like the, like the 
the creature he saw. No. It, it almost smacks of someone who saw something truly remarkable, then tried to like justify it with the existing literature. But at this point, you know, paleontological research wasn't at what it is now. I mean, the Mosasaur, which is what, you know, we're going to get into this in a moment, but the Mosasaur, I think, is the most likely candidate for the creature that best fits his description. But at this point, you know, the Mosasaur had already been discovered uh, in Germany, I believe, actually. Um, mm. And certainly in other countries, too. So these prehistoric animals were known, and he even mentions the Mosasaur briefly in his account, working off the description of a... Um, of, an, of another professor who wrote to him saying what you described sounds a lot like a mosasaur but it's almost like he wants to try and find a way to justify what he saw at a time when the literature didn't exist to make him conclusively say it was what we could probably think it is now with the benefit of modern science and paleontology to back us up so he was kind of forced into a corner to say well my thing sounds a lot like i guess sea serpents even though yeah, it's something right. I'd say more exciting. I, I, I definitely think it's more exciting. I mean, mm-hmm. and the question is, if you are leaning in that direction, it's sort of like, why was it there? How did it get there? And what exactly are we trying to pinpoint here? Mosasaur or something similar? If you want to believe any of this at if all. If you want to believe any of this <laughs> yes. at all, and we'll get into that as well. We will. So I, I feel like that's a perfect translation to this one excerpt I pulled here uh, from what you sent us, which is great. This was a quote from Von Fossner, and I had to include this because it essentially reminded me of the plot of the film The Meg with the Megalodon, and (laughs) this this theory that's been put out uh, for Mariana's Trench of almost like a bios, you know, a, a separate biosphere beneath at the very bottom. But this is a quote from Von Fossner. He says, Professor uh, Pappenheim from the Berlin Natural History Museum explained that the tag number one supplement from March 8th, 1934, that the Chechberg specimen was probably a pilgrim shark, which could not, which could reach a length of 15 meters. And this is what he said that this Professor Poppenheim said verbatim. It cannot be dismissed out of hand that undersea tremors have brought completely unknown species of gigantic sea creatures to the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was fascinating because there was no, he made reference in the translation as well, there was no evidence of recent activities such as this. But that sort of reminded me of the movie The Meg. I just thought I had to include that. It is a very interesting suggestion. He really sort of leans into the idea that undersea tremors or potentially the effects of the Great War at sea itself with undersea detonations of explosions and sinking ships is what has caused these previously unaccounted for marine creatures to surface. However, if this is a marine crocodile, it cannot exist at, without having to breathe oxygen. So it would yes. have to be a surface-based animal. If it is something completely different, some kind of creature that resembled a crocodile, but it is something that lives in a completely sort of oxygen-free state deep below the water, then this is like a really interesting suggestion he makes. And it is very much like the film The Meg, which I do love. Oh, it's uh, we've watched it a couple of times and it's so ridiculous. We covered it on the show, but uh, it's such a fun the the concept and the premise is so fun because obviously the oceans are so vast, so still unsurveyed that who knows? Who knows what could be? Who knows? And then also the fact that this was World War One. This was the first time that submarine technology had been employed in the oceans, correct? So (laughs) exactly, you would think maybe perhaps like I was trying to think because you had a question about why 
Like, why would a sea creature like this be so close to another vessel, right? Mm. Such as the case that we're talking about right now. And I just thought that was interesting to think, like, what if they were almost, like, courting it? Or they were exactly that, like, um, defending their territory kind of thing. And I think we'll touch on that yeah. in a second. But I thought that was interesting, the idea of human technology inter acting with environments that previously weren't available to us and perhaps exactly interacting with creatures that previously undiscovered. Yeah. yeah. It's it's important to sort of when you think about it in a way like humans have encountered sea serpents for millennia, but we've never encountered them below the surface of the water. But that's not to say they're not down there, because people on, on sailing ships and Von Forsen addressed this too, people on sailing ships were seeing monstrous sea creatures with with significant frequency. Uh, yes. And then, then he is commanding. He was actually the first person to ever come. He commanded the first ever submarine in the German Imperial Navy as well, U one, which was outdated by the time the First World War came around. But he was kind of this a pioneer of sea undersea exploration. So he was really breaking into new territory that had never been explored in the history of humanity beforehand. So he was really going into areas where, like, when you think about sort of people going into jungles and finding new species of animal because humans have never been there before. I mean, humans have sailed back and forth across the surface of the ocean for thousands of years, but never gone underneath it until the early 1900s. So suddenly this was this whole new territory being opened up to them. And just an interesting thing that I'm reading here uh, in the Von Forstner thing, which I think ties into what we were just saying before about sea snakes. Uh, which I just think it's, it's important to acknowledge because Wilhelm Bölsche, who had wrote to von Forstner, wrote this. Yes. He said, the new portrayals of the big sea snake actually give it four swimming paddles, something that is by no means snake-like. Rather, they resemble the swimming mosasaurs of the primeval Cretaceous seas, which, with their often colossal, large and snake-like elongation, always had such, pad always had such paddled feet. Since there could be such beings drifting below, of course, it's been left up entirely to real long-term observation, but Herr von Forsen's report would, for the time being, support this description. And I think that's an interesting observation that the submarines are introduced and suddenly this new class of sea creature, of sea monster, begins to be encountered. Almost as if the sea serpents were something different, but now that submarines are going into regions where humans have never been before, they're now encountering all new species, of which this mosasaur-like entity is one of them so i think that could be possibly a part of it yeah no i i think that kind of makes sense like a genesis yeah an evolution of the of the folklore or of the actual uh <laughs> knowledge i guess or experiences or encounters yeah that's do you do you want to speculate a little bit let if we're gonna go back to just the idea of a mosasaur because that's the, I really wanted to talk about that and and just about the sighting in general. So six six crew members allegedly saw this happen. Yes. From from the translation, when he came out with the actual with his 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 account in the thirties, many of these guys were already not around anymore, as yeah. far as I understand. Is that there was correct? only one man left alive from the original? Is it the chef? Yeah, the yeah. chef. The chef or the cook? Robert or Robert Mars, the chef. Ah. That almost sounds like the plot of a movie too, eh? Like I the chef, it, yeah. the, the the chef on board with his hat or whatever is like the last person alive to have seen this <laughs> crocodilian <laughs> mosasaur-like monster. I love that. That's prime. We should write a screenplay about this, I feel like. I think so, um, yeah. All the officers died, but the chef survives and he's the one that carries this tale. He and Von Forstner, both of them. I mean, they of set, course. it seems like they stayed friends up until the 30s too. They were hanging out 
only a few years before he wrote this account as well. So it's like they kept right. in touch. Right. Mm-hmm. And to go and to go to this whole back to the Mosasaur thing, like Amber, you know, tossed out this uh, this question of like, why would it have been there? And I tried to look into some ideas of like the behavioral patterns, the, the hunting patterns, like those types of things. Obviously, it's really tough because it's all speculation. Like the only I think 1764 was the first Mosasaur discovered in the Netherlands and then some in Germany and the rest of Europe and then over in North America. But just fragments and just piecing it together like most paleontology. Right. But obviously these were aggressive marine reptiles like huge teeth like they would have been when hunters but would it have been following beneath the ship out of curiosity or would it have been i mean thinking that it was another animal like like you said like you said in your in your work that the submarines it was like the first time they were beneath the, the first time humans were going going and exploring really the, the oceans in these giant tin cans that were essentially in and of themselves like sea monsters i mean they were they they resemble them in a lot yeah. of ways, really. For the humans of the land, submarines were sea monsters. They were something completely unknowable and incredibly scary. Now, I, 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 I can't comment on the behavior of, of a mosasaur. Uh, it could have thought the Iberian was a mate or it was an enemy. But I have to sort of remember that whales are hit by ships. Not all the time, but fairly, oh, fairly wow. frequently. And whales are not actively swimming up to ships on the assumption that these ships are their mates. They just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time because boats move faster than any living sea creature has evolved to be used to. Yeah. So this is, this is the issue. I mean, that's why so many things are going extinct now. Humans are sort of exponentially, we're not evolving, but we're evolving the environment around us at an exponential rate that other species can't keep up with. So modern ships move so quickly that a whale doesn't have it within its cognitive abilities to often react in a, in a manner that you would think would be sensible if you saw a gigantic ship bearing down on you. So right. whales get hit by boats. Um, not all the time, but it does happen. So it is entirely pos- possible that this Mosasaur, this U-28 creature, which I'll refer to it until we confidently yes. know what species it was, but <laughs> the U-28 creature could have just been in the area. It could have been, mm. it, it could have just been passing by this ship or else it could have been curious it really it could have been both threatened or completely oblivious uh there's no real way we can tell either way it's a it's a pretty comedic end for for this creature really or if it, if it did actually die from this thing it's like you're swimming along because you're attacking something or you're following it because you're interested and then you get blown out of the water inexplicably or you're just there just minding your own business yeah. and then your afternoon gets ruined the inexplicable destruction is the part that i think like just you're, you don't even know there's a war. You have, no, you have no cognitive awareness of what even a ship is as this U-28 creature. You just happen to be passing by completely unaware of what these boats even represent. And then one sinks, and 25 seconds after it sinks, it blows up, and then suddenly you're just caught in the crossfire of the First World War as a gigantic marine reptile, which had just been <laughs> hunting seals and small dolphins and just doing its thing. Right. Just doing its thing. Um, maybe we should touch on that then, the actual explosion yeah. aspect of this story, just before we uh, move on to the second case here, because I, I have a hard time picturing this in my head, right? This whole idea of, I just got to say, beautiful, beautiful introduction to this topic in the article that you wrote, Nick. Like, this sounds like a novel in the making. Like, mm-hmm. actually, like, I was just like, I was spellbound when I was reading it. But the idea of, okay, so basically you go through 
the entire documented series of events of what happened as far as the sinking. And then you, we get into this part where basically we get a second secondary explosion that is coming from the ship itself as it's sinking. Has it already disappeared below the surface or is it just about to? It's already submerged and it's been submerged for Von Forsten thinks it was underwater for about 25 seconds before the second explosion happens. Okay, so in my head I'm trying to picture this thing sinking the ship and then the secondary explosion. So technically the creature had to be resting on top in order for it to be propelled Mm. up out of the water, correct? So that means it would be very shallow. I I just, I'm, I'm picturing in my head, if you were this creature... (laughs) <laughs> and you are in this situation and you see this completely foreign entity that is obviously in distress and obviously mm. there's a lot of violence going on around it. Wouldn't you be getting the hell out of there as soon as you possibly could and not hanging around to see it sink for 30 seconds? I know 30 seconds isn't a lot of time or 25 seconds. Because the impact but... would have caught, there, there would have been noise from the impact. and like, you, would think, another... you would think everything would go scurrying right. away, like no yeah. matter how big you are. Like I'm, I don't know. I've read this thing that boat engine noises will often confuse whales because the whales their echolocation is disoriented by the the sounds traveling of uh of um engines moving underwater of boats right so possibly it could have even have been drawn to the sounds of the explosions and the men splashing in the water out of curiosity or else completely confused and panicked by these unfamiliar sounds it swam towards the nexus of the fight rather than away from it just ah yes out of sheer disorientation hey exactly yeah yeah. that's interesting because i just want to touch on that too just so we can get that because i'm visualizing it in my head how it all went down and because again talk about wrong place wrong time because it's one thing to be there when it's hit with a torpedo and starts to sink it's a whole other thing to be in the exact vicinity where that second explosion is going to send launch it (laughs) into the air yeah uh without knowing what the heck is going on. I, was just gonna say, I think that's a good reason why it doesn't, why we don't always encounter Mosasaurs every time there's a sea battle, because the chances of these specific circumstances occurring are monumentally small, but also if there are giant marine creatures we know nothing about in the world's oceans, chances are that very occasionally they will have to intersect with human behavior, although it would be an incredibly rare occurrence. So... Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the point too. Because when you take this story in isolation, it seems so fantastical for any of this mm-hmm. to have happened. But then once you start contextualizing with some of the other cases that we have here, mm-hmm. it becomes a little bit more plausible in the sense that yeah, this is definitely a rare occurrence, like you said. But mm-hmm. these things are out there, and like mm-hmm. the more you dig into it, the more stories. And whether or not these are yeah, like you could say they're old tavern tales from drunken sailors that just want to elaborate on whatever but i think i think there's something a little bit more to it should we should we go on to the next uh case we have we can go on to the next case and then come back to maybe speculate on von fossner and his and the believability unless we wanted to do that now i mean the there is some more things i wanted to touch on with uh his translation or your translation of his uh work in particular let's stick with the iberian for a second then before we before Before we we head out move on yeah because i think the one thing i wanted to point out is like okay the next case we're going to get into in a second is the exact opposite of the first one that we're getting into in terms of who attacked who and who said what potentially but what we have with this with the iberian and with von fossner's account is obviously he is a legitimate sea captain he was a german a german soldier right like he a naval officer like we actually have something to pinpoint he's a real person he's a real person where these (laughs) other cases we don't necessarily have that to latch on to 
And then also there's the fact that like, we've talked about sea snakes already very briefly and how sea serpents, sea snakes, this is the most ubiquitous sighting from uh, in, in the oceans of sea monsters, I'm air quoting here. So do you think that it was maybe just for fun if this is a, if this is a fake that they came up with a different version or does it seem more believable to you that they're describing a creature that is not a sea serpent because it's that was the typical thing. Like if you're going to encounter a sea monster, everyone's encountering sea serpents. Hmm. That would I be easy to say. That if 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 they were just trying to like, um, I, I, it's a really interesting question because I do we believe von Forster or not, and we will get into that in a moment. But there, he talks so extensively about sea serpents, yet his creature was so unlike a sea serpent. You think if he was making this up, why did he see something that wasn't a sea serpent? If, it, if he wanted it to be different, if he wanted it to be more crocodilian, then he should have written more about that. But in his discussion of what he saw, he's trying to reconcile what he saw with the existing mythology and lore of sea serpents. So right. it's kind of like he should have done one or the other. But the fact he tries to do both almost makes it seem like he saw something unbelievable and tried to compare it to existing narratives. But it didn't right. quite fit because a sea serpent is not what he saw, but he did see something. If he saw right. something, which we will get to. Oh, there was a quote uh, that he referenced here. So this was after he had published the initial articles in those softcover magazines. And then he had been reached out to by um, a Reichsmarine member by the name of Loish, if I'm pronouncing mm. that right. And he confirmed that he had his own account of an animal that was the same shape and size. And he went on to, again, describe it as a, a snee snake. Snee, oh my God, I keep doing that. Snee C snake, that she's been doing that all day. Sea <laughs> snake. <laughs> um, and that he had seen this, this was in the PM, this was like 10 o'clock PM. So of course, this isn't bright daylight, it's yep. not sunny, whatever else, even though obviously sunlight can impair your vision too, if it's really bright. But he goes on to say that he won't let anyone deny it, quote, the animal had a long lined head, ridges like a crocodile, and legs with real feet. <laughs> so that's interesting, right? He, go, he, he does the same thing as Forster does, where he's describing it as a snake, but then also contradicting that statement by saying yeah. it has arms and legs. Right. It really seems like they're encountering some other creature and then saying, well, what is it? And them being military men, they need not have a great paleontological background saying, oh, this sounds like a mosasaur, this sounds like a pliosaur, or whatever other prehistoric right. reptile that I think it could be. So they're kind of like, they're, they're describing something. In fact, the description that Lurvish provides there, where he, he mentions how it had real feet. Now, I have theories as to why it couldn't possibly be a crocodile, but the most important reason is that crocodiles have to lay eggs on land, which means these giant creatures would be seen around the coast with monumental nests. Yes. The fact we have never seen these creatures makes it pretty clear to me that they give birth to live young at sea, which is what most prehistoric marine reptiles did. So that for me is the most important reason why it might be any number of prehistoric marine reptiles, but it wouldn't be a crocodile. But he does describe it as having real feet. And certain translations, which I might say now are mistranslations of the von Forsner text, also discuss not the fins or the paddles of the U-28 creature, but its feet. And they sort of say, well, how on earth could it have feet? And I think something people don't really realize is that while many prehistoric marine reptiles were so evolved that their feet had evolved to resemble paddles and fins like pliosaurs, plesiosaurs, and ichthyosaurs, mosasaurs, which 
in a very short period of time went from not existing in Cretaceous oceans to being the dominant predator in Cretaceous oceans because they were descended from very recently descended from land-dwelling reptiles their paddle-like legs still actually had the divisions almost like webbed claws they still oh, had claw-like yeah. feet very strong paddle-like but they still were recognizably feet-like in a way that a pliosaur which had far more millions of years of evolution had much more fin-like legs so these descriptions of these strong feet or these paddle-like feet or its real legs makes me only further think that these guys are describing mosasaurs because a mosasaur is the one prehistoric marine reptile that fits these descriptions so perfectly even down to its not quite legs not quite fins that it has so that for me i think is a pretty um the Lervish's account is one of the few things in the von Forsen text that really reinforces what von Forsen saw. He's desperately trying mm. to compare his case to things we now know were um, the carcasses of dead basking sharks and to sea serpents. And he's comparing his story to accounts and cases that are less, are much more tenuous now. But then Lervish's account, also a U-boat captain, also meeting something in roughly the same part of the Atlantic too actually does corroborate his story but as you say amber he does talk about it being a sea snake because they can't quite recognize it as anything else because they are men mm. of the sea but they are not naturalists so they know sea serpent stories but they don't necessarily know the most up-to-date paleontological research as was being done in the 1930s right which is obviously to be expected and it's yeah. uh, which is That's which is i guess why cryptozoology really kind of like took took off in the 1930s with with, uh, with, with the Loch Ness Monster. We haven't even touched on that yet. Uh, but uh, this publication sort of came out almost as a result of the discovery, if you will, of the Loch Ness Monster. I don't know if you wanted to touch on that at all, Nick. Is that as a way to possibly segue into discussions of the reasons why von Forstner could have made it up. Would you like to do that? Or do you want to talk about the U85 first? We can cut Do you want this. to jump into U85? Let's jump into U85 and then we can come back to, sure. to speculate a little bit on the first account. Because obviously with this, this second one, with the HMS, and I think I'm pronouncing this wrong, but the HMS uh, Coreopsis, something along those lines? Yeah, yeah. Something like Coriops. that. Coreopsis. <laughs> Coreopsis? Coreopsis? Something like that. Greek word, I'm assuming. Yes, I think Coreopsis is correct. Important to state it is Coreopsis 2. Coreopsis 1 was a very different ship. Right, right. And this, so it's Coreopsis 2. This is, uh, was a, a sloop ship, as they're called. It is essentially like, from what I understand, it's almost like a 50-50 halfway between a cargo ship and a, an armed battleship. Yeah, they're called drifters. They're basically regular vessels that have had a couple of guns bolted to them and they're used for yeah. semi-military purposes, but they're not battleships. They're... They wouldn't do very well if they were engaged in an actual firefight with a U-boat. Right, right. So we've introed this story to, to the listeners already, so I'll pass it off to you, Nick, because obviously what we're dealing with here is the exact opposite, if you will, to the first account. Right, so this is the story. This takes place in 1918, um, and it involves the Coreopsis II coming upon a motionless German U-boat, in the um the irish sea and immediately opening fire no doubt fearing that if the u85 were, were to return fire they would be sunk immediately but in response to their opening salvo just all 35 crewmen of of u85 just abandoned ship immediately and surrendered to the english en masse and when they were when they were interrogating 
when the English were interrogating the surrendered Captain Cretch, he insisted. What a great name. What a what a great German villain name. Oh yeah. Gunther Kretsch. Oh, yeah. When they were inter- <laughs> when they're interrogating Gunther Kretsch, he said that the reason why his submarine was sitting motionless and they abandoned ship immediately is because his ship had been so heavily damaged only moments before by an attack from a sea by a sea monster. And it is it's important to state that actually even as these surrendering Germans were being taken aboard the Coriopsis too. U-85 just sunk in the background quite unceremoniously and at first it was assumed it was sunk due to the bombardment by the English but then Captain Cratch presented this different story where he said as the ship had been moving along the surface of the water recharging its batteries which was an important thing for early submarines to do it had been beset by a fearsome beast with large eyes set into a horny sort of skull with teeth that could be seen glistening in the moonlight and what had transpired was a very exciting fight between able seamen, German able seamen and this monster firing their small arms into the hide of this creature, which had not been impervious to bullets, maybe, but had certainly not been affected by them too much. It had given, and administered enough damage to U-85 that it was now crippled. And right. only moments later, Coriopsis II had shown up and the Germans had fled their ship because their ship was sinking due to the damage received by this, by the sea monster. Yes. Sea serpent call it what you will right <laughs> so of course now we have now a second creature that is described as is very different from from the iberian but still we're in we're in roughly the same waters so to speak i mean we're off we're, we're off the coast there in the of the uk and it's it's interesting because this guy i mean you had some you had some really uh <laughs> some funny and interesting things to point out about this guy and how he may have actually made it all up in a very different way than uh von fossner in the first mm-hmm. one but amber did you anything you wanted to mention before we maybe get into breaking down this no that's this exactly exact what i want to get into that's what you wanted breaking to get into? this okay. down because okay. i personally think this guy's full of shit <laughs> yes yes so. i honestly think um what was it dr mccarth mccartney yeah McCartney dr mccartney had some interesting statements to say too that kind of lend shed some light i would say on how all this went down because obviously very very strange right to come across a submarine that's just basically like you know like just a sitting duck like you you wouldn't really come across Mm -hmm. that so clearly something had to be wrong but was it a sea serpent or was Was it it someone (laughs) i just love this part so let's get into this so basically The flip side of the story is there is nothing fantastical. There is no sea serpent at all. What there is is a uh, U-boat captain that wants to be very comfortable while he's sleeping, so he decides to install, what was it, a, a heater? A heater that yeah, actually made the bulkheads inoperable. So the watertight bulkheads are now inoperable. He had a heater installed in the officer's quarters, which had to have a cable run into the adjoining compartment over the bulkheads, which means you couldn't actually create a seal of the bulkheads anymore. And this is what he did. And also, they've actually found U-85. That's why it became kind of big news in 2016, because they found U-85 on the um, on the sea floor when they were laying cables between Scotland and England and Wales. And so, actually, Dr. That. McCartney, Dr. McCartney was leading the the excavation of this submarine. And obviously someone asked him if he wanted to address the infamous story of Gunther Kretsch fighting off a, a sea monster and a combination of historical evidence and also the fact they had the physical ship now to study made it pretty clear that Gunther Kretsch had made his ship's bulkheads useless 
And what they had been doing, so the theory goes, is that they had been, as he said, you know, recharging their batteries on the surface of the water when their watchman had sighted Coriopsis 2 approaching them. And so they had attempted to do an emergency crash dive and just plunge below the water immediately and didn't have time to close the hatch on the conning tower, which means water started pouring in. And normally that could be okay because you could just close the bulkheads, contain it in one part of the ship and then pump it out. But because of his desire to be cozy at night, he had cables going over all the bulkheads, which means the doors couldn't be closed, which means water was now flooding the entire ship. And I was recently watching a documentary um, in which a, a submarine captain was saying, the moment water gets into the ship, if it gathers at one end of the ship, all the other liquid in that ship will gather at that end, making it top heavy, and then it'll just plunge headfirst into the seafloor and everyone will die. So the only thing they could do was just expel all their compressed air, launch themselves to the surface, and then immediately abandon ship. Even if there was a British... Coriopsis 2 nearby, even if that ship was firing at them, which Coriopsis 2 did fire an opening salvo at the ship, it didn't matter because if they stayed on board that submarine, all the Germans would drown. So right. it's pretty likely that's what Kretsch did. And von Forstner mentions an account where he says, lot, well, he mentions something in his account where he says, lots of sea captains have seen sea creatures that defy our understanding of the natural world, but they don't come forward with these stories because they don't want to be considered mad. But it seems Kretsch preferred being considered mad over being revealed to be a completely incompetent captain mm. who had lost one of the Kaiser's submarines because he liked being cozy. So he's yes. like, I'll, I'll actually rather be crazy and be the guy that fought a sea monster than the guy that put a heater in his office. Yeah, right. like what's what's the worst out of the two? And that actually is an interesting uh, segue perhaps into talking about what could be alternative reasons for telling these stories like you know like beyond the idea of them actually believing the stories themselves like you know mm -hmm. like this is a perfect example to me it's like yeah would you rather be incompetent or would you rather have had an epic battle with the sea monster <laughs> and, and yeah. to, to that note like is he i would love i wish i could be a fly on the wall for all these conversations but kretch is there just pouring his heart out about this account did anyone else back him up i wonder you know what i mean like the thing i read is that apparently it was corroborated by members of the crew but maybe if your captain says one thing maybe it's better for all of them to actually imply yeah. their ship was lost in a battle with a gargantuan sea creature it wasn't lost because they were incompetent and they panicked when a, and the thing is, like, a drifter is not a battleship. So when the Coriopsis 2 shows up, it's not a very scary ship. It's not sure. something... So maybe there's a, an element of pride there. It's like, we don't want to have been... The sh we don't want to be the crew that lost their submarine because we panicked at the sight of a little sloop <laughs> and then flooded our ship. So we'll much rather be the crew that fought off a sea serpent. But I think what happened is that Kretsch gave his account first because they interrogated the captain first. And then maybe the rest of the crew heard the interrogation were like, okay, right, this... This is what we're yeah. going to say happened, actually. Right. That's the official story. Yeah. The only the only things that I will say, just to play the fun cryptozoologist devil's advocate to any of this, is is a couple of things. One being that, like the the 2016 discovery, I wonder have they actually been able to pull it up? Because I know when I read an article, a BBC article, you shared one, and then there was a couple others as well talking about a few different U-boats that were found in 2016 and that one of them is likely UB-85, but it's not 100% sure. It's either UB-85 or, or another very yeah. similar Oh, it's ship. sister, wasn't it UB-82? Yeah. yeah, it's a sister ship. 83 or something, UB-83 maybe. Right. Yeah, the sister so submarine. It's, 
it's obviously hard to tell exactly which yeah. ship is which and, and what damage, I'm air quoting here again for an audio show, everybody listening, uh, what <laughs> damage would have been sustained by such a creature is, is, is kind of hard to see. The other thing I wanted to mention uh, was just the idea that obviously, like officially, neither the captain, Crench, or the naval uh, intelligence that like interviewed him after the rescue made any statements about sea monsters, like officially, officially. But my what I'm wondering is like, Crunch. was this simply omitted? You know what I mean? Like in my mind, from a British perspective, they're the ones taking down notes from this. They're they're bringing in POWs. They're they're the ones reporting on this sub. Wouldn't you want the record to show that you took down a German sub? You're not gonna you're not gonna pander to a German naval officer saying he saw a sea monster. They didn't see anything, so they're gonna write down that they sunk the ship. Possibly, although. And I, I mentioned this elsewhere in my account, but during this period, stories of sea, sea monsters were given a lot more credence by members of the Navy than they are now. Uh, it, was, it was commonly held. I mean, I, at that point, people, we kind of assume we know everything there is to know about the natural world now. And that arrogance, of course, existed in, in the Great War as well. But at the same time, people could be more open to the possibility of there being gigantic sea monsters because the sea was far less explored than it is even now. And I will say we haven't explored it really at all, even at this right. point in the 21st century. But I think even at this period in, 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 in the past, people were more open to these kind of stories too. And all sides in this war, British and German, were encountering sea monsters. And the other thing is that the Coriopsis too can't really conclusively say they sunk this ship because... Right. They fired a bunch of shells and then already the crew were abandoning. Because I think it's true. I think the Germans just screwed up and they were like, well, we've got no choice but to yeah. surrender to the British. But I don't think the Coriopsis crew could also say, oh, we definitely sunk it. Because it <laughs> yeah. didn't even, even to them, they had to admit it didn't really look like we did the damage to this ship that it was suffering from. But it is interesting that it sort of kind of wasn't talked about. Because another thing that ties into the von Forstner account is that none of the English survivors of the Iberian of which there were many, none of them ever reported seeing the U-28 creature. Mm. And I have theories as to why it could have happened, but they repressed the information. But I also have theories as to why this could be seen as evidence that it didn't actually occur. It could be a similar thing here as well. It could be, if it's real, if all of this is real, it could be that during the war you don't want to distract people from the war effort. You don't want to divert people's attention from signing up and going to France to fight the Hun. So the moment you start talking about all the sea monsters that live in the Irish Sea and around the Irish coast, you start to create sensational stories that might distract public opinion. So that's possibly, that's the only reason I can think why the British press might be repressing these stories. Right. Hmm. You know, I think that's probably a good segue before we go into case three to just to just go back to the believability. So, yeah, let's let's get back into speculating about the believability of, of von Fosner's von Fosner's account. And I also, too, wanted to touch on some of the ideas uh, you you, uh, you you speculated on with like just the right. I mean, you didn't actually you didn't use the word Nazism in your article, but like the, you know, the early thirties and sort of this buildup of like trying to rebuild German pride, German nationalism, the, the mythology, the mythology of, of the people. Yeah. So that is, that I think is a rather interesting, uh, approach and what I think should not be discounted. So 
Firstly, before I really get into the rise of Nazis and how that could impact sea monster sightings, which sounds like a kind of crazy segue, but <laughs> often when people have these encounters with these kind of creatures, you sort of one of the arguments used as to the, the arguing that it's a, that these stories are valid is that they have nothing to gain by coming forwards with these stories. People have people that encountered the Mothman or people that often get abducted by UFOs have horrific encounters. And an argument that believers could easily use is that they have nothing to gain from this. They don't receive money for it. In fact, press attention might even be worse for their lives than not coming forward. So they probably come forward to this information because maybe they just want answers or maybe they want to warn the world of the powers beyond our comprehension that are warping our lives. There's a lot of reasons people could come forwards but often those reasons don't benefit them. But the same can't be said for Von Forstner because he just made bank every single time he published an article. <laughs> he didn't say anything about the encounter in 1915 until 1933, so that's 18 years later. Yeah. And he publishes this article and starts to get a bit of traction. And a year later, he publishes a new article recounting the recount of the event. And he even gets an illustrator to provide a copper plate illustration of the U-28 creature. And then a year after that, he receives this book deal where he's going to translate Captain Gould's account of sea serpents and write his own, um, his own introduction to it. And Von Forstner had actually published a book called... Well, in English, it's called The Journal of Submarine Captain von Forstner. And in German, it's a literal German translation is being a U-boat commander warring against England, which is obviously not a great title to translate yeah, into English. really rolls so, off the tongue. <laughs> nothing in German ever does. But <laughs> so he was already a published author. In, in, that, that book was published in 1916. And then, you know, so he's already got a little bit of a following. He's already a known writer. And then he starts making these articles and then these illustrated articles and then these books. He's making money off these publications. And he doesn't, he's not one of these people who's traumatized by his encounter. He's just fascinated and delighted by it. So he really benefits, he only benefits from the press surrounding this. The one reason that he says most sea captains don't come forwards with these encounters is because they don't want to be considered crazy and thus lose their command and their position within the Navy or within the, um, within the merchant marine. But he's a retired sea captain by this point, who's probably, right. you know, he's, he's just been living in Germany for nearly 20 years since the war, you know, twiddling his thumbs. What does he do? I, I could write a book. And that's a very easy accusation to make. You can say that about most people who write books about mm -hmm. cryptozoology. So it doesn't inherently mean it didn't happen. Just because he makes right. money off it doesn't mean it's not true. But then the other element, which you just mentioned, was the rise of Nazism. So the year his first article was published in 1933, which was published in Deutsche Allgemeine Zeitung, which was his first ever description of the event, Hitler had become Chancellor of the Germany, of Germany. And so he, even in 1933, there were sweeping legislative powers happening. The National Socialist Workers' Party, which we know as the Nazis, were installing themselves as the only form of government in Germany. And brown-shirted thugs were... Uh, engaging in heightening acts of violence and cruelty against communists and Jews and anyone considered a threat to the Nazi ideology. So that was 1933. By 1935, and the publication of Begegnungung mit Gehirn, which is the German title of the book I read, which translates to Encounters with Sea Monsters, President Hindenburg had died and the Weimar Republic had ended. The office of president had been abolished. Hitler had become the head of the state and the government. So... 
1935, that's the year that Nazi Germany dawns as a, as a, as a proper entity. And I have no idea what von Forstner's thoughts are. I don't want to speculate on von Forstner's opinion or politics. I don't want to discuss his thoughts on the rise of Nazism. But it is important to recognize that during this time, Nazism had this really pernicious ability to infiltrate and infect almost all forms of culture, ideology, and behavior in, in Germany. Even though Nazi Germany only officially begins in 1935, the rise of nationalism in Germany had been coloring public opinion and thoughts and behavior for, for years at this point. And something that's yeah. interesting mm-hmm. to observe is that, and I think it is in 1933, that's when the new modern Loch Ness Monster craze begins in England with, I believe his name is George Spicer. He's, he nearly runs over something on the side of Loch Ness, which is a big, leathery, rubbery-looking creature with fins, and that begins this spate right. of sightings. You get this surgeon's photograph and all this kind of stuff. And so mm-hmm. suddenly sea monsters were back in the public eye. They were back in vogue. But that public eye was fix, fixated on England. And a big part of Nazism was they no longer wanted... I mean, the, Germany had been paying brutal reparations since the First World War. And a big part of the German identity that the Nazis tried to create was, like, <clears throat> we don't need the rest of the world. We don't need to pay people back. We don't need to be successful only on the thanks to the largesse and by riding on the coattails of the victorious powers of the First World War. We can be great entirely on our own. So there was this real mentality that a big part of the Aryan Teutonic identity was built around like Germany for the Germans, German stories. We don't need foreign heroes. We have our own heroes. And there is an argument that can be made that at this point, as part of the general zeitgeist of the period, sea monster stories were popular. They were lucrative. People were excited about them. And Germany didn't have their version of the Loch Ness Monster. But if someone were to come forwards as a German with a story that could rival or be better than the Loch Ness Monster story, that would really feed into sort of Germany being like, oh, we don't need the Loch Ness Monster. We have our own, <laughs> we have our own better stories. Of course, a big part of Nazism was the remilitarization of Germany and also celebrating the aristocracy too. And the von Forstner family are a well-established, or were a well-established family of nobles. They They were aristocratic Prussian family that had served in the Imperial German Army for generations and in the Navy and in all other factions of the armed forces. There were often von Forstners fighting. So the von Forstners were kind of perfect in a way because they were both, they represented that old Germany, that military Germany from the, from the early 1900s that Germans could be proud in. You know, before the reparations, before they had to stop making weapons and before, before their army was reduced in size by the victorious powers at the end of the First World War, you know, this, this old imperial Germany that the Nazis wanted to harken back to, von Forsten was kind of this relic from that period. I mean, he probably wasn't old enough to be called a relic, but he was he was part of that old guard and he was aristocratic and he was a published author. So there was a lot of good stuff that, you know, it just t- took a little bit of prodding and pushing and sort of, su- you know, suggestive conversations. Be like, hey, you know, if you just came out with a sea monster sighting, that'd be great. You'd get a lot of money out of that. And at the same time, that would really benefit us. And I'm not saying that... Hmm. 
I know Goebbels personally approached von Forster and asked him to write these books. But I'm more saying that <laughs> at this point, that kind of mentality was unavoidable. So publishing houses and just people on the street and friends of von Forstner, people were talking about this kind of stuff already. So you need not be directly approached by a Nazi to unwittingly, in a way, feed into that nationalist ideology that became Nazism as we recognize it sure. uh, today. So there was this undercurrent that could definitely, I think, have led to being a retired sea captain who hadn't written anything for nearly 20 years to suddenly come out with a bunch of sea monster stories and make a little bit of money off that and remind everyone that you're a, a submarine ace of the First World War and you're an aristocratic man that everyone should look up to. It, it really benefited von Forstner mm -hmm. and in that way it would also have benefited the ideology of Germany in that period. So that's something that I think needs to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. I love the way that you put that all together. That's very succinct. And I think that definitely speaks to what was going on in that particular uh, cultural moment of the time or the zeitgeist, if you yeah. want to call it that. Because like, I love how in the translation that we have directly from Forster himself, he, he says this, he's like, one may ask me why I've remained silent for so long. And it's like, yeah. in my mind, it seems very weak to go ahead and say uh, that he finds himself, this is a quote, in the frustrating position that my superior simply did not pass on my observations during the course of the war. Mm. So it's like, uh, that to me, again, well, that doesn't really add up, right? Because if he thought this was very significant, well, he does go on to say that he himself did not quite believe in the significance of what he had seen right. and that it was only because of all this stuff with Nessie coming out of the woodwork yeah. that he felt compelled, I Wh guess. Which to, to me, like... To, to again be the devil's advocate to, to both to both of you guys, I'm, I'm I gotta be like the, the hardcore tinfoil hat guy over here. I'll come <laughs> it, back to it. It, it. also could be it. argued that his his he's like he's like oh I have a very simple reason why I didn't come forward with the story. No one treated it like it was relevant, and I forgot about it. Mm. And I agree yeah. with Amber that that's really weak. But at the same time, I mean. On that very day, he was really busy trying to sink English boats. And then immediately afterwards, he piloted his submarine to the survivors of the Iberian who were in life rafts to make sure that all the wounded men had their injuries attended to because he was quite an honorable captain. And now that the English were no longer, mm -hmm. that now they're out of the picture, he made sure that they were all cared for before he departed on his way again. So there was a lot of, you know, warfare and first world war kind of stuff that probably took precedence in his mind and in the mind of his crew over sort of wow crazy that giant marine reptile yeah. let's talk about that and forget that we're still in the yeah. middle of an active engagement with an enemy ship so that's totally that's what i was going to say to come back to my my train of thought there just the idea that like this was 1915 this wasn't the very end of the war like they still had a lot of stuff going on a lot of stuff yeah. to do you know what i mean like it wasn't like and it wasn't as if it would be like wow that just happened i'm going to just fire off a quick tweet about that everybody before we continue on with this fighting because it's like it's 1915 you're not going to stop it. i'm going to just write a book real quick and then we'll get back to the rest yeah. of the war you know like, like it, there is i think i think there is something to be said for his i feel weak but valid argument that ah oh, it's just we had more important things to do at that time than engage in marine <laughs> zoology i think it's a direct quote from him and i'm like ah oh, damn it he's kind of right yeah. like we look at that we look at it now yeah. as these kind of people are fascinated by this like oh my god if we'd been there fly on the wall or fly on the submarine and we'd seen this thing get shot out of the water you know we'd been taking photos and we had been telling everyone but 
when you're a bunch of men who've been trained to sink English ships, you know, sinking the English ships and then, you know, being honourable to the shipwrecked men afterwards takes precedence over lengthy discussions as to what was that big thing we just saw? Uh, It's fine. Later. It's really not relevant right now. Later. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Did, Did you want to move on to our third case today, Amber? Sure. Or do you have any questions about, or do you want to talk about uh, U85 or U28 anymore? Oh, gosh. Well, I think we've kind of run the gambit with that one. I mean, we could talk about this until the cows come home. It's the, the third case that we wanted to go through with you is, of course, the uh, bumping ourselves up to the Second World War now. And the, the poor Japanese in the Second World War, they just seem to run into every monster known to man and not have a particularly good time with it. Yeah. Uh, so unlike uh, the first the first account here with uh, the with the Iberian, uh, we've got a similar sort of um, well similar similar in some ways to the to the U85 account, except that we don't have a sunken ship or anything like that. But so we, we again we've relayed this story to our listeners already. We've got this this Japanese scout ship in the Pacific, no exact location, and out of the three stories we've talked about today, this actually has the least amount of credibility behind it. But the reason we wanted to talk about it today with you, Nick, and we talked about this before we started recording, was that the description of this creature with leathery skin uh, resembled very much a crocodile, similar or an alligator rather, very very similar description to that of the first the first story we talked about today. Now, I know you've looked at this case mm. and you have some speculations on what they might have encountered there, but I definitely wanted to touch on it briefly. So what do, what do you make of this World War II account with the Japanese scout ship? So it has a really special place in my heart. As we discussed in the last episode, I, I, my, uh, my entire archaeology career at this point seems to be based around studying the suffering of Imperial Japanese soldiers in the Pacific. Uh, with my expedition <laughs> yeah. to Columbangra, and of course that led to the the giants of Guadalcanal. I have a really soft place in my heart for soft spot in my heart. Soft place in my heart makes it sound like my mother drunk when she was pregnant. I have a very soft spot in my heart <laughs> for um, for these stories of like the Japanese encountering these horrible creatures because it happens a lot and they never ever come out, come out of it very well. Von Forstner blows his creature up. Just completely blows it out of the water. But the Japanese stories, they're always getting attacked by apes or eaten by giant spider crabs, which is another great story. And of course, then there's this encounter at sea. The whole thing really is this almost like very pulpy comic book narrative of just the Japanese just can't get a break when it comes to mysterious creatures in the Pacific. But so that story I really like. And as you've mentioned, its description as being this large marine creature with a crocodile-like head that rammed the side of their boat and then they engaged in small arms fire with it has a lot of echoes both of U-85 and of U-28 from the First World War. Mm-hmm. I mean, U-85, which we don't think is true, but, you know, Captain Kretsch apparently did heroically fight the creature back with his pistol. And Von Forsner, of course, reported seeing a large crocodile-shaped creature and so did Captain Lervish of the other submarine too. So these crocodile-headed but gigantic marine creatures are showing up a lot from the First World War onwards. And I do think it's very interesting for that description alone, although I do, because there's so little I could find, like, as you said, about the Japanese encounter, there's, and as I encountered actually when I was writing about the giants of Guadalcanal as well, I could never find a Japanese first-hand account of these stories. And for me, I think that would really 
there would be enough information if it was a first-hand account that I think I could draw satisfying conclusions. Unfortunately, I mean, that's why I was so happy to find this book because I'm like, oh my God, I'm actually looking at one von, what von yes. Forsten wrote. This is straight from the horse's mouth, which when it comes to discussions yes. of cryptids is probably the most important angle of the story to get because I have, of course, encountered this Japanese battle at sea uh, a few times but it's always people discussing it. I don't know quite where they got the story from online. And it's this sort of nebulous web of sort of going down a, a, a wormhole of internet links. And nothing really satisfactory comes yes. of it. So for that reason, I find almost this story even less plausible than Captain Cretch's story. Even though I think Captain Cretch mm -hmm. made it up, at least we know that U-85 sunk in the Irish Sea and his, sh his crew were rescued by Coriopsis 2. Like, that definitely happens. Yes. But I can't even find... There's not even a name for this Japanese scout ship. But I always think it's important. No, I know. Like, I... we must always... Like, I, I always believe... Like, where is the fun in being a pure skeptic if you want to talk about cryptozoology? Because what you could say is, oh, yeah, well, none of this is real. They lied about everything. And that's not a really good podcast idea, I think. I think it's much more entertaining <laughs> no. to actually discuss and analyze it. You know, give... Say, okay, if this story is true, how could it be true? And that's how I like to approach these stories. If it is true, what could make it real? And so say the Japanese scout ship story is true. What could it be? If we go with the pure believer route, I think it sounds like they encountered another Mosasaur. Its description is less concrete than what Von Forstner gave or what Lervish gave. So I can't accurately say it could be a different marine creature like a pliosaur which is my personal favorite species mm. of marine creature prehistoric marine creature there's a lot of different awesome prehistoric marine reptiles that it could be but i think if we're going to go pure believer it would be a mosasaur or a pliosaur or something of this nature but i also do have a theory that if this incident did happen then it might be a more prosaic animal equally terrifying in that moment but something that does exist in our world right which i think we had written down here that you it may have been a bull whale sperm whale a sperm whale sperm whale rather with the leathery skin like the color matches the texture matches the only thing that obviously doesn't match would be like the feet which of course they can't see because this creature doesn't get launched out of the water yeah. like in our first account which which again actually i didn't mention and uh, when we were talking about the iberian but the idea that the the sketch that mm. we have that we'll include for everybody to see when we when we release this episode is strikingly similar to a stuffed specimen mm. of an alligator that was on display that von Fossner would have had would have been able to basically take yeah. as inspiration. Some of the most damning evidence towards von Fossner's story not being true is that he really swears down in his article that this illustration, no, though not the one that my co-worker made immediately after we saw the creature because apparently the head engineer i believe immediately made a sketch of the creature after they saw it in 1915 and he says the illustration you all see is not the original sketch but it is a copper plate illustration i was advised to make by my publishers but in all details that matter it is identical to what we saw that day but if you look at that you say this really looks like a stuffed baby alligator and mm -hmm. Maybe Von Forsten didn't really remember what his creature looked like, or maybe because he had never seen anything, he just sort of let the artist do whatever he wanted to do, and was like, yep, nope, that's, that's it. 
And in the case yeah. of this Japanese scout ship, there is less description and really the leathery dark skin and the fact that it rams head on the side of the Japanese scout ship is sort of the most conclusive bits of that encounter. And that for me really smacks mm -hmm. of the behavior of sperm whales. I mean, famously the Essex, which was a whaling ship in the early 1800s, was sunk by being rammed by a bull sperm whale and the crew all put to sea in the whale boats and they all ended up eating each other and it's an incredibly harrowing story. Um, but it all is kicked off by a bull sperm whale ramming and sinking a whaling ship. And when I read that story, then I read this Japanese encounter, it really sounds like a bull sperm whale once again has got upset with the presence of this Japanese scout vessel and has rammed it. And in the dark, because it happened at night too, in the dark, the Japanese are firing at something big and leathery and dark in the water, but they're not entirely sure what they're shooting at. It's wrinkly and they could very well have assumed they were fighting a crocodile. I mean, it's a, a sperm whale's back is wrinkly, it's ridged, it looks sort of like a combination of leather and scales. It could pass in the dark to the untrained eye as being crocodile-like. Um, right. So if, if they didn't truly see a cryptid, I think it's quite likely they saw a sperm whale. And in a similar vein, I think if Von Forstner truly saw something, but it's not a cryptid, if we don't allow it to be a cryptid, my money is on, is on it being a basking shark. Basking sharks get caught up in cryptid encounters a lot because of the very unique way that their bodies right. decay. Of course, he didn't see a decaying basking shark. When a basking shark body decays, it really looks like a plesiosaur. This is a very yeah. weird phenomenon of basking sharks that their cartilage rots away, but they have really calcified spinal columns and brains. So when a basking shark decays, you just get like a spinal column, a brain case that looks like a little head and big fins hanging off the side. It looks mm -hmm. like a like a plesiosaur. So basking sharks get sort of caught up in sea monster encounters quite a lot, but also it's important to realize that it wasn't until the last 40 to 50 years that we learned anything about basking sharks. Prior to that, they were known to exist, but they were really anomalous creatures that people didn't know anything about in particular. And even the first people to actively hunt and fish for basking sharks in the 1940s had to remind themselves, I've read an account written by Gavin Maxwell, who's a both a, a naturalist and a shark fisherman, which I kind of think is kind of contradictory, but you know, he was a naturalist when it came to birds and mammals, but not when it came to fish and sharks. But he, he writes a lot in his memoirs that as he sailed over schools of basking shark, he said these things were so big, bigger than anyone imagined sharks could be, that it looked like herds of swimming elephants. And his crew would often refer to them as dragons, simply because shark didn't, didn't seem to define this creature. And when he caught his first basking right. shark, basking shark in 1945, which is 10 years after Von Forsten wrote his account, when Gavin Maxwell catches his first basking shark, it's one of the first commercially caught basking sharks in the world. And we know basking sharks feed off plankton, but we only know that because Gavin Maxwell cut this basking shark's body open and went through its stomach and everything. Up to that point, they could have been man-eaters. Nobody knew. But when he was winching this giant dead creature out of the water, it's about eight meters long, winching it out of the water, he said two things, which I think is really important to bear in mind. Because it was being winched out vertically, it looked so much larger than being eight meters. Because when you see something vertical rather than horizontal it looks bigger also because 
They're used to the idea of sharks being in the water. The moment it is separate from the water, it starts to look utterly different. And all the Hebridean islanders who'd gathered to see him winch the shark out of the water, he's got quotes from them saying they couldn't believe it wasn't that it was actually a fish. There's no way it could be a marine creature. It had to be a monster of some kind. And I read that. And the interesting thing is basking shark migratory routes go up and down the Irish Sea and out into the Atlantic past all the places where these U-boat incidents happened. And right. to see a creature from a great distance launched vertically out of the water, if things look bigger in the vertical than the horizontal for a few seconds in an explosion, and for it to be a creature you are unfamiliar with, makes me think it could possibly be that if the U-28 creature was real, a real living, breathing animal that we have recorded, I think it could well have been a basking shark that just was such an anomalous creature that they'd never seen before that they imagined it was something different in the retelling totally no that makes a lot of sense and yeah. and, and and possibly because yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because actually you took the words right out of my mouth i was going to say do you think that it could have been like a, a a species of whale or something that he just totally yeah. misidentified um so basking shark makes sense because they are very bizarre looking we pulled up some in- images of them before we started recording amber was like i am never going swimming again and she says every time she you looks know, at anything ever i was like literally could you imagine if you're just swimming through the ocean and then this thing comes up from behind you and you literally just are engulfed in it like, like, you know, they're like passive like, they're just swimming around but if you you are very small so you just right? go straight what do you do what do you do you need to have a knife and like cut well, yourself out of it yeah. and the only thing that doesn't make sense to me is the teeth like the actual mouth part and i guess we only really get do we have a description of teeth from forster himself or was it just from the u85 account i think it was just from the u85 just u85 so okay so perfect so everything else basically aligns Mm-hmm. Except for yes. the feet, obviously, too. Except, yeah, except for the that's, feet. That's a big problem. Which, if we're going, Mosasaur is kind of like the halfway between paddle, still has yeah. some 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 digit-type things like Nick yeah. was The saying. Mosasaur perfectly yeah. fits the description. The Mosasaur, it's just... Unless these stories are true, the Mosasaur has been extinct since the meteorite hit the Yucatan Peninsula yes. 65 billion years ago. So it kind of like... But right. I'd say the yeah. most plausible creature that is extant, it's either a fin whale, which can grow up to 20 meters, and they have these really angular heads. And, I mean, it's blown out of the water. You see the the two front flippers of a fin whale, and it's only up there for a few seconds. And maybe they sort of... That's the other thing. I have seen whales breaching in the past. And when a whale launches itself out of the water, it doesn't really look like a whale. Because we're used to imagining what a whale looks like underwater. And the moment it's out of the water, it's it's big, and it's dark, and it's rubbery. And unless you're being told this is a whale... For the seconds that it is airborne, it looks completely bizarre. So possibly it was a whale, like a fin whale, which grows right. large enough to match the description Von Forsen provides. Or it could have been a basking shark, which doesn't grow that big, but if seen vertically launched out of the water for a few seconds, could pass for being that large. And of course, none of them are truly crocodilian, and none of them have these these fin claw paddles. But... That could be, I mean, memory is notoriously unreliable when it comes to going over these things again in retrospect. Exactly. Especially 18 years after the fact. And especially with monster descriptions for whatever reason. That's a really good point you brought up, though. The idea of like seeing something outside of its natural environment appearing much more alien. Mm. And then the idea of, yeah, flipping the alignment Mm. so it's not a horizontal, it's a vertical. Mm -hmm. Like that in itself could alienate. Um, the physiology of something yeah. to quite a severe degree. Right, because we sort of imagine everything to be it's linear. Funny. 
And then to suddenly see it yeah. like that, and by like that to all our listeners, yeah. I'm rotating my hands into the vertical. To <laughs> <Yeah, it's> the <laughs> yeah. 90 there. Yes. It's, it's funny, actually, we were watching Jaws a couple weeks ago, and there's that scene, right, where they bring up the first mm. shark, and they have it hung, strung up or whatever, and it was the exact same thing. I was just, yeah. like, looking at it, and I was like, this just looks so mm. weird, seeing it mm. out of the water, seeing the way, obviously, its head was at that oh, strange yeah. angle, because mm-hmm. it's, like, got the hook through it and things like that, and I was just well, like... and then they said the same things, they're, you know, in the, in the lines of the film or whatever, but they're like, this is a man-eater, look how big mm. it is, because it was strung up vertically, mm-hmm. like you described, and they, but it wasn't even remotely close, close. to the size yeah, of what exactly. they were looking for which is <laughs> maybe the case with this with with the iberian as well yeah. who knows mm-hmm. I, don't know. I mean i obviously want to believe that he saw something that isn't that mm. that isn't an identified creature of course and i always we always go back to we're, we're going to talk about it a little bit more in our theories later on but like the creatures that do exist that are living dinosaurs i mean obviously birds and alligators and crocodiles are in and of themselves as well but then there's the ones that are just a little Mm. bit more fascinating obviously we have like the frilled shark 80 million 80 million years old the the coelacanth is just the classic like over 360 million Mm. years old oh yeah love horseshoe crabs like (laughs) 400 plus million or 450 million years old and they're identical to i think this is the perfect segue into the third possibility which is von forstner truly saw something and it really was a creature previously we did not think to exist. And I agree with you right. entirely. There's one thing I just have to say is that I find it unlikely this could be a, be a creature completely unknown to science because some ancestor of this creature has to have shown up at some point in the fossil record, even if it's in a very primitive form, but it yeah. probably exists. And an argument I've had, I've heard people use against the impossibility of there being mosasaurs, pliosaurs, plesiosaurs alive in the world's oceans today is, and I think it's quite an accurate argument in many cases, they say, well, animals evolve and change and 65 million years mm. is so much time that these animals surely have evolved. But then you think about examples like the coelacanth, mm-hmm. the, the seven-gilled shark and the horseshoe crab, they haven't evolved because they have not they've not been put under the environmental pressures to change. Of course, there have been some pretty severe environmental pressures between the Cretaceous period and now, but it is plausible that a creature could survive for an extended period of time and its form wouldn't have to change so dramatically that the creature von Forstner saw could very well be the descendant of a prehistoric marine reptile that we have found in the fossil record. And I think, you know what, that's that's a great spot for me to end because that's what I want it to be. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the evidence maybe has yet to be discovered that maybe there, that there is something resembling a Mosasaur still kicking around. I mean, if we were kind yeah, of coming down to our it. final thoughts and theories here, Nick, where are you after going through these three, these three cases today? I know there's so much, I mean, we could talk about sea monsters all day and I'm sure we're going to have you back on to talk about mm. other sea monster accounts in the future. But like, where, where are you at after we've talked about these three stories? So the Japanese encounter for me has the most potential to be truly shocking and world changing because it has so little about it. So the ambiguity yeah. of that account means it could be totally prosaic and mundane. It could be an angry sperm whale or it could be absolutely world shattering. That's really exciting. I think the case of Captain Kretsch, it is most likely that Captain Kretsch was making it up because he'd rather say he fought a sea monster and lost than say he sunk his ship because he wanted a heater. But then the Von Forstner account is interesting because 
I think there's a lot of reasons why Von Forstner could have made the story up. But then there are interesting things like you acknowledge, which I never thought of before, is that he's describing something that isn't a sea serpent, but trying to reconcile it with sea serpent stories. As if he really did see something and was trying to justify it with the historical, cultural, scientific understanding of that period, which had not yet brought mosasaurs and other prehistoric marine reptiles so prominently into the public eye as they are today. And mm. before I read his account and I was just thinking about what I knew about it, I thought, well, you know, considering that the English didn't see this creature and he mentioned it 20 years later and his illustration is of a little baby crocodile. I mean, there's a lot of things that make me think, oh, this is, this is fiction. Mm -hmm. But then when you read his account and his desperate attempts to sort of like tie his sighting in with sea serpent stories, but he can't quite reconcile them because his story is just that little bit more different. The other thing is people have said it's convenient that most of his crew who saw the creature died, but also they still had many more years of the first world war to go. So it's not surprising they yeah. all died. The U-28 was lost yeah. with all hands later on in the war. Von Forstner had been transferred by that point, but they all died. Maybe all the crew died in that sinking. So it's, it's convenient yeah. for a skeptic, but it is not proof for a skeptic. And his conviction that he saw something, and the fact that his descriptions so neatly align with Mosasaurs. And I will say this, is that we know so little about the world's oceans. We know more about, I mean, you, this is the thing that everyone says in every documentary. I've heard David Attenborough say at least three times, but we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the ocean, but that is true. Right. And there are yeah. examples of very big air-breathing creatures living completely unnoticed in seas around the world. And I know we're wrapping up, but just very quickly, they discovered a pod of fin whales living in the Mediterranean. The fin whales are the second largest whale in the world, and they were thought extinct from the Mediterranean, which has had humans living around it since humans left Africa. And only in the last... 15 years they discovered a population of thousands of fin whales living in one of the most heavily um, commuted and used patches of water in the world and a little bit closer to my home in New Zealand uh, the Brutus whale was believed to be all but extinct from New Zealand waters due to extensive uh, whaling in the early 20th century and there was just maybe two or three left in the Hauraki Gulf, which is the patch of water immediately outside the harbour of Auckland, which again is where every single ship that comes to New Zealand has to go through this, through this harbour. Right. And they discovered a pod of, I think it's about 180 Brutus whales just in the last 10 years. So giant creatures that breathe air can live completely unnoticed, even in parts of the ocean that are so close to land and so close to human uh, sea traffic. So when you consider the size of the Pacific or the Atlantic, I think it is incredibly misguided for us to believe that we know every creature that lives out there. Not even just the small ones. I mean, everyone would admit there's probably half a dozen jellyfish we haven't studied yet. But even big sea creatures can go unnoticed. There are species of beaked whale, like the, uh, I believe it's called the shepherd's beaked whale, which we only know from a few beached bodies and two skulls. They've never been seen alive in the wild. They're only recognized scientifically from the handful of bodies that have washed ashore. So when you consider that these creatures all have to breathe air and yet we've never even seen them alive, there is no reason why if the environment was 
if the environment between 65 million years ago and now was suitable for marine reptiles to survive and if you look at the examples of other relic species if you look at examples laid by sharks which are relatively unchanged since before the dinosaurs it's entirely right. plausible that a species of seagoing monitor lizard which is what a mosasaur is it is just a giant monitor lizard a seagoing monitor lizard they started off very small and a small population of small marine reptiles in an isolated pocket living off the meager food that was available after the meteorite impact and then as the climate gets better slowly growing larger but never being so large a species to make an impact on the new species of whales and dolphins but just living in their little yes, isolated yes. pocket could plausibly exist in the world's oceans today and i'm not saying they are but i'm saying it is foolish to say it's impossible that they are 100% agree. I'm so glad you brought that up, especially with the examples being, you know, air breathing, like species of whales that are that are hardly seen or ever seen at all. I mean, another example I had pulled up in my notes here was the pygmy right whale, which has only apparently been spotted a few dozen times. And there's like basically no specimens exactly. of them at all, which is just bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. So to think, what about the things that don't breathe air and do not have yeah. to surface that perhaps a submarine might encounter not on the surface but in the depths uh, so to speak it's oh man we could speculate speculate for days that's absolutely that's so so cool that's that's the bread and butter mm. of into the portal really um going beneath the surface really is in in a way like going through the portal into another yes. world into another what is water dimension, if not so a portal i always say this yes mm. Amber, did you have any final thoughts and theories or things to say on this, this wild ride we've been on today? I have a whole bunch to say. I think I'm going to save it for like our like conclusion. <laughs> okay. I do want to say, though, Nick, I think that was a very important point that you touched on uh, with with the idea of Fos Forster. Sorry, I keep wanting to say Foster. Forstner. Forstner. It is a tongue twister. <laughs> with the idea of him trying to grapple with something that he potentially experienced and trying to fit it within the canon of the other relative, possibly relative experiences that have already mm. existed mm -hmm. in previous examples. But I also think that I love the idea of where you went with the idea of, again, right, he's existing in a time where there's a, a lot of German nationalism, a lot of like the restoration of German pride, heritage, what it means to be Mm -hmm. folkish like the german people like you know what i mean and how they were trying to create this sort of platform of legitimacy from which obviously nazism uh, yeah. came from yeah but the idea of like like you were saying how he's using all of these different um like examples and stories and people to kind of bolster his own story it really reminds me of a lot of parallels um in different regards even with like ariosophy for example and we actually have a i have to do a lot more research into this but the idea of trying to connect german history and german individuals with um a lot of like yeah mythology mm -hmm. a lot of uh stuff that <clears throat> the occult and well the, yeah exactly right yeah and things like that and how how that was all just uh nation building in a certain regard. I don't yeah. know. I'm phrasing that really poorly right now, but <laughs> Well, I love the juxtaposition of it too, where it's it's all it's nation building and like we we've speculated on like was this maybe potentially like a part of you know rebuilding of the pride, but then there's also like the belief. You know, like as we get into the second world war too, like we've talked about this in past episodes where it's like it's one thing to like build up nationalism and like have your own Loch Ness monster story. It's another thing too to like legitimately like go looking for the Holy Grail and go looking for this creature to try mm. to find 
to make something out of it. Like they believed in these types of oh, crazy yeah. things too. So Art. it's like it's this it's like this fine it's sort parts of, a, of them did. Part, parts some, of them some did. Some people right? did more than others. But, I mean some of yeah. the, the head honchos yeah. did. Yeah, well yeah, exactly. Which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is a whole podcast yeah. I'd love to get but, into is the Thule Society and all that all that good creepy stuff that happened in Berlin. But I think yeah, Amber, you just mentioned something I hadn't even thought of, but his entire introduction to this book, which I mean you have a copy and we've been discussing all this evening I mean, we've, we've touched on the U-boat encounters he mentions, and a few U-boat encounters he doesn't mention, and a Japanese encounter as well, but there are a lot of encounters of just Germans in boats. But I'm realizing now that so many of the so many of the stories where he like he quotes people have written in letters, they're all German sea captains, they're all German naval officers. So he really did sort of create this platform to sort of gather together this German narrative relating to sea creatures mm-hmm. to sort of compete with with what england had or what great britain had at that point and i even thought of that but he's got so many other english i mean so many other german anecdotes in that opening chapter so it really actually plays into it. i didn't even mm-hmm. thought of that yeah, no doubt. <laughs> it's a pretty interesting angle to explore, for mm. sure. We definitely could have focused just on the translation for this episode, but we wanted to bring in some of these other stories to try to, take, you know, just to juxtapose them to the Iberian story and U U twenty eight. But in the end, I think like we we've talked about all this stuff, and I don't don't necessarily think we've gotten any closer to knowing obviously what the heck's going on. But that's what makes it so <laughs> much fun, and. Uh, We've definitely added some some really, really, really like relevant context to all of it, though. Yeah. Thanks to you, Nick. So thank you so much thank again you. for totally. coming on the show. Amazing. It's, we can't wait to have you oh, back on be- again. Hopefully it's going to be sometime really, really soon. Hopefully. Maybe some people that are active in the military now will have their own stories after hearing this. Because we actually uh-huh. had someone come out of, um, and have something that they want yes. to share for a part that four. Be, yeah. So we're doing a part four of this series. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just thinking now, like, obviously this is Second World War, First World War. Like, I wonder if we could drum up any other more yeah modern. someone's great grandfather maybe had a written written account there have to be more stories there has to be so hopefully something something more comes out hopefully. of the woodwork here yeah so again nick thank you so much for joining us and uh we'll talk to you again soon this has been an absolute pleasure thank you for letting me shout at you about german u-boats <laughs> of course all right man till next time so nice take care guys hey everyone andrew here I don't know about all of you guys inside the portal, but for me, 2021 has been, well, pretty much a carryover from 2020, right? And personal note, my mental health has not been all that stable at times over this past year. And even though I never thought I would need it in my life, having a professional to talk to can make a massive difference. And that's where BetterHelp.com comes in. BetterHelp has over 300 licensed therapists who are available worldwide through four communication modes text, chat, phone, and video. This makes getting the help you need not only convenient, but also reliable and regular to get you on track for the rest of 2021 and beyond. You can start communicating with a therapist that's right for you within 24 hours of signing up, but best of all, it's more affordable than most traditional options, and there's financial aid for those who qualify as well. And we here at Into the Portal know what it's like to be at your best and at your worst, so we want you all to start living your best lives. Into the Portal listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code PORTAL, spelled P-O-R-T-A-L. So why not get started today? Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Go to betterhelp.com portal. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched up with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com portal. 
Okay, well, that was a very fun discussion. Always a good time with Nick. Yeah, I love uh, what he brings to the table as far as his thoughts and ideas, and it's a perspective that I think is quite valuable. So absolutely I'm happy that he could be with us for this episode. And I mean, obviously, being being in Germany is. Uh, being in the place, the right place, the right time to find that book was just massive. So we wouldn't be doing yeah. this episode if it wasn't for Nick and his translation, mm-hmm. um, which I definitely want to get into a few more pieces here. Exactly. So we're going to dive into all of that. Oh, pun intended. <laughs> like a submarine. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I wanted to tee up just by kind of like, let's go over it case by case a little bit here. So we're talking about case number one first. And Nick had an interesting uh, way of phrasing it. And I thought, I'll just read out his quote here. Basically, what we're dealing with is, quote, three possibilities that either von Forstner made up his account entirely, that he truly saw something but failed to realize it was a prosaic and scientifically recognizable sea creature, or that he is telling the truth and accurate in every way, that he did indeed bear witness to a marvelous creature otherwise thought to be extinct. Right. So, okay, let's go through these one by one, I guess. So. Sure. Was this all a lie? Or, again, some kind of misidentification or something like that. Right. Um, so we're kind of lumping those two together. And Definitely a lump when you put those two together. Yeah. So is it an intentional lie or is it him being mistaken? I guess yeah. those are kind of the two there. Right. And it's an interesting proposition. We can talk about both of them. But again, yeah, like there's there's two aspects of this account we can look to for its believability. And yeah, so like the first aspect is that we're dealing with a real person that actually existed. He was the captain of this boat. And so yes. that gives him some sort of lens of credibility in my mind. Yeah. And the second is that it wasn't just him that saw it, supposedly. There were others on board and they do come from the German side. We don't actually have any English survivors speaking to this account. Right. But there was six, I think he said, six crewmen that saw it with him. And one was actually alive at the time that he was writing in uh, 18 years later in 1933. Totally. And that was, like we mentioned, the chef or the cook. The cook. The cook. Yes. And I think we had a 14 Times article that referenced it to how it was basically he was um, the most ostensibly sober and reliable witness. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, I mean, and that, that makes sense. A German baron who was a career naval officer, right? I mean, it. it, it oh, is sorry. Like, yeah, I was talking about actually Forster himself, not the cook. Well, and the cook <laughs> I too. Read that. No, and I the... thought the cook was like, because I'm just thinking of, you know, every single character of a cook is like this guy that's like always like, you know, half drunk. <laughs> a in little the kitchen, kooky, yeah. A little more than a little kooky. Sure. Most chefs I've known have been more. You know what I mean? So I'm just like looking at that, but I totally misread that. They were talking about Forstner himself. Yeah. But I mean, in general, I mean, if Forstner is going to say that the cook and these other people on board saw it too, like that, that in and of itself is lending credence to their credibility as like his, under his command, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other corroborations to this sighting though, you know, based on, I'm air quoting here again, guys, man, how many times have I done done this in this episode for an audio (laughs) show? But trying to corroborate it with scientific theory at the time. Yeah. And Forstner mentions this guy, Wilhelm, Wilhelm Bolsch. Mm. Man, I'm butchering that too. But there's a few quotes here that I wanted to read out because they're really interesting. And these, these are, again, from the translation that Nick has done. So this first one kind of goes to corroborate what he was saying. So the new portrayals of the big sea snake 
2 actually give it four swimming paddles, something that is by no means snake-like. So this is in reference to general sea serpent sightings at the time. Mm-hmm. Rather, they resemble the swimming mosasaurs of the primeval Cretaceous seas, which, with their often colossal large snake-like elongation, always had such paddle feet as the relatives of the modern monitor lizard. Since there could be such beings drifting below, of course, it has to be left entirely up to real long-term observation, but Herr von Fossner's report, for the time being, supports this description. So it's basically saying these things existed, we know they existed, von Fossner's report is, is in line with the description of these ancient reptiles. Yes. Does that corroborate it or not? Well, it's fine, but at least you have the scientific community reading and listening to what he had to say and be like, huh, maybe he did see something down there. Yeah, there's a small asterisk, though, next to that point that you just made there, because Willem Bolsch wasn't actually a scientist, right? He was someone that promoted nature conservatory, and conservatism, it, sorry, and he was an author and a publicist. So. I didn't say he was a scientist. I'm saying working with scientific theory at the time. These guys were all amateur naturalists, I guess we would call them. Like von Forstner was the same. He wasn't educated in zoology or botany or anything like this, but he was, after the war, interested in this stuff and wanted to to write about it. (laughs) Um, There is further corroboration too. This was from an actual scientist, an actual professor, Professor uh, A.C. Odemans. And we didn't actually pull up too much of his background, but this is, is again, from the translation. (laughs) Where von Forstner said this, Professor A.C. Odemans has informed me in writing that my assumption on this point is correct. I had come to this assumption because we saw no humps or similar body parts on the animals that was launched into the air, while almost all observers of the swimming animal in Loch Ness and earlier observations, as already stated, saw such humps or spikes in various numbers. Corvette... <laughs> no, Lord, just say Cor- Lowish. <laughs> Lowish, <laughs> who is currently still a member of the Reichsmarine wrote me immediately after my first publication and said this, I saw an animal of the same shape and size as you describe as a first officer on watch on SMU boat U108 on July 28th, 1918 at 62 degrees 20 north latitude on the approximate longitude of Muggle Fluga. <laughs> and there was other officers that saw it as well. The Unteroffizier. Yes. <laughs> I love this. Even that Corvetting Capitan, Loish. <laughs> Sorry, that's like my very terrible uh, German accent there. But yeah, that's, that's just all their titles. Hey? Right. Like, yeah. And Professor um, Udbans, he actually, yeah, you're right, Andrew. He was a zoologist. He was Dutch by nature. There you go. And he um, did specialize in the study of ticks and mites. Uh, but he also is known for his books on sea monsters and the dodo. So he was writing about some uh, extinct species or perhaps not extinct species from the depths. And of course, what we have have here is this corroborating account from U108 in 1918, which is the same rough timeline as our second case in the Coreopsis 2. So that's another thing, a rabbit hole for, for speculation in that, mm-hmm. in that sense. Well, okay. So I... Like, yeah, like, let's get into some of these things. Because, like, he says a lot in the translation that was provided for us. And I'm just like, you know, at, you get to a certain point where it's almost like he's just trying to tally all of these accounts up. He's just trying to provide as much material as possible, even though he does conflate sea snakes and these mosasaur type things, right? right? And so in my mind, yeah, like we discussed with Nick, it's it's interesting because is he trying to contextualize and make it comparable and digestible for the public that will be reading this? Uh, some sort of like lens for them to understand that is like, you know, like not totally outside the realm of 
of what we know. Sure. Or at least in folklore and accounts that had come before him. But it, it is kind of confusing, hey, the way that he does that. It's and the a- way that he, like, he conflates a lot of different things. Like, even mm. those ones, the Cherbourg uh, corpses that were right. washed up on the beach. And how, like Nick said, those are just basking sharks that yeah. were just, uh, yeah. J- yeah, that's just the way that they decay. It makes them look like they have, like, a tiny little head, which is so funny. Well, we should post those pictures, too, because it is very confusing. It you is strange. would just look at that and yeah. be like... You know what I mean? Like, what the hell? Is when it reminded me, too, of, like, the the Globsters, those stories yeah. from, the I think, the east coast of the U.S. Yes. and stuff. And people Wasn't there like one wondering. caught? It was, like, melting in an iceberg for a while, and no one yeah, knew what it was. People, yeah, and if it's, they're just, like, whale carcasses, essentially, for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely bizarre. The, the, the dinosaur theory, the idea of it being a some sort of a surviving relative of the Mosasaur, I do I do quite love. And that's why I like that quote from Odemans and having like a zoo, zoologist make reference oh, um, yeah. to another. And, and then obviously the account from another uh, another uh, naval uh, seaman <laughs> who actually saw something similar in 1918. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, I'm glad we brought it up with Nick too. like essentially the quote that was like the plot of the Meg, because where are these things coming from? Are they yeah, com- you know? <laughs> I love that. That was the Professor Pappenheim. <laughs> yes, Pappenheim. <laughs> that was so great. I love the idea. It cannot be dismissed out of hand that undersea tremors have brought completely unknown species yeah. to the yeah. surface. Yeah, that's pretty cool to think about. But again, right? Like, yeah, like I, I, I like how Nick contextualized it by saying, like, you know, this was like one of the first times that we had a lot of human traffic underneath the surface of the oceans. Right. And so there was a lot more of this kind of springing up. And then obviously a lot of it gets quashed by the Second World War and just almost like, I won't say it was like part of the erasure of a lot of histories, but it was kind of tied up in that because it was so, um, what's the word? Like it's, it's very whimsical almost to think about. There's a lot more serious things to to reconcile and deal with after those wars. But what did we want to get into now as far as discussing, like we had some theories here, like, you know, like the idea of, whether or not we're dealing with a mosasaur or something. Else. I mean, we've talked about all this with we Nick. kind of already like did, at yeah. the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I think what I think where I'm at here. I mean, I'm I've already kind of I'm already getting down winding down to the end here because I want to believe I want to believe von Forstner. Nick made the comment that he he did yeah. unlike a lot of other, you know, cases of monster sightings or or what have you, profit off of it because mm-hmm. of the the height of Loch Ness coming and all that kind of stuff. But then you and I were talking this morning on our walk um, before we started recording, we're like, well, maybe, you know, this is like, it's not the days of Twitter and stuff like that, right? Like maybe he didn't just remember in the thirties and be like, oh, I can capitalize on this. He might've been telling this story in pubs for the last decade and a half plus, you know, and Mm -hmm. telling it to his friends and family and stuff like that, but then never, but never thought to actually like do anything with it. Yeah, and right? then you get these resurfacing reports of Loch Ness and all this kind of stuff. So yeah. he kind of, yeah, it's like, okay, this is my moment. It's yeah. the cultural zeitgeist of the time. Like, let's do it. Right. And he's, yeah, he's prompted, right? Because he makes that initial publication in that magazine. He gets responses. He even says it in the introduction to the book, uh, Gould's book, that he basically was reached out by so many people. He can't remember all the letters, but one that came to mind right away was Loish's account because it was so close to what he experienced. Right. I love how Loish case. So basically, in his translation, he goes on to say, um, 
so this is this is the words of uh, Forstner. He says, Lowish then goes on to say that immediately after reading my report, he got out his privately kept war diary in which there was a full confirmation of my observations. One passage of, from this is given here. And quote, this is from the diary. Spotted a sea snake clearly at 10 o'clock p.m. I won't let anyone deny it. The animal had a long lined head ridges like a crocodile and legs with real feet came on site on port aft i got the description noted down right after changing the changing of the watch after returning home i confided with my comrades about it i also recorded it i was obsessed with the creature for some time <laughs> end quote so it was like again right he's getting all sorts of confirmations and yeah so he's he's being encouraged to write more about it so right. again right you know you're talking about what are his true aims is it to make money off of these publications is it to create like nick and we kind of suggested like this this competing german narrative of of war heroism and things like that and mm. and um yeah like fantastical stories of tackling sea monsters yeah. during these very very trying times right and it that is definitely an interesting do you think it could be a bit of both? to talk about i think i think it could be but the point that i was kind of stuck on in that regard is like a lot of his work forstner's work depends on the validity of like people like gould and stuff and he even says that right like all of german science he says here this is a quote we all but especially german science should be grateful for the tireless work of commander rt gould which was based in part on the meritous and laborious work of professor dr udmans as well as the publishing house of allah right and so it's like he's he's not dismissing out of hand the contributions that came before him from allied sources right right so what do you make of all that like well it's still so early in the 30s too right because at first with that we were saying like huh he's clearly not like a quote-unquote like nazi sympathizer at this point in time but the party had but but also at the same time this is still the better half of a decade before everyone was gonna be like "Uh uh-oh the nazis is a bad thing like hitler was on the cover of time magazine in the early 30s you know that's just yeah this was so he still could have been really cool with his Interests and counterparts. Oh my gosh, I shouldn't even say that. That's so bad. (laughs) You could have been fine with, you know, connecting with British researchers and stuff like that. And then also still had this German pride building too, because it had true. could be in tandem. It could um, be not. Yeah. Because he does obviously credit um, Udmans, which was, he wasn't even German himself though. He was Dutch. Yeah. But he goes as far to say that every sailor and seaman should read this book, like Commander Gould's book that Mm -hmm. he contributed to. And be aware of these things and share their accounts as necessary. So that in my mind kind of speaks to a dude that's like, we need to get the word out here because A, I want to confirm that I'm not crazy for what I saw. And B, let's solve this mystery because it's absolutely fascinating. Right. So to me, it kind of goes more so to the cryptozoologist slash like, you know, like just the adventurer kind of person. Like not someone that really maybe has like a... Um, a strict agenda that's like strictly financial i guess yeah and then in that sense when we compare the iberian account in this first one which is just which is the crux of this whole episode to the u85 and which is so hilarious how crutch we get into (laughs) that with nick how he just wanted to be most likely this was all his fault and we made it all up Mm -hmm. that almost to me 
because again, I, like, okay, I'm not buying Cretch's story. No. I'm not buying the U85 story. It is a really fun, cool account. And there actually is a quote here. Um, I'm not even going to do the whole thing, but uh, it was from an article that Nick had wrote as well that he sent over to us mm-hmm. talking about how, you know, what the German captain Kretsch could have said m- may well have been true, like, since there are a lot of sea monster accounts that we can point to, but there's no actual official record of it. There's no him coming out decades later after the war, like von Forstner and retelling the story again. There's no corroborating witnesses to go with it at all. And it kind of sounds like he just wanted to be warm. But does that in and of itself help corroborate von Forstner's account? Does it almost say that, you know, years later, someone could be like, we heard about this through the grapevine of a monster story from earlier on. That's a good idea to use as as an excuse. Hmm. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like if you thought about it that way, like maybe Crutch was like, oh shit, like, I need to come up with something fast. This so oh, I remember. Had... I remember hearing that through, like you know, you must have people. People must have heard about that story when it first happened through the grapevine. I am curious. I wonder. Like you mean just through official military channels, or yeah, just like people talking, just or like word people, of mouth, like. Because there was no initial newspaper publications. All there right. was was his initial report that Forstner had written that he said was thrown in the waste paper basket. Right. So it just would have been him or the cook talking to somebody after or telling a story to a, you know, a prostitute that he picks up in a, or whatever. And then she tells it to the next person. Right. And it's that just like. That is a really fascinating thing to think about whether or not Cratch was familiar with yeah. his story. I'm, I'm kind of like 50-50, kind of like, you know, it yeah. was three years later, but it was war. So it was like, right. if, if he had made that initial report in 1915, everything gets swept under the rug, then that's kind of just it. Right. And there is no newspaper sensationalism, right? Yes. But uh, yeah, on that note, though, yeah, the idea of him remaining silent for so long and trying to figure all that out. And you were saying like, yeah, like, well, he probably wasn't silent on this. He was probably telling whoever would listen. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? We like, just, it's just easy for us to pub, say. Whether it's like special occasion with your yeah. family, whether it's like, you know, you take a, a trip and you're on a boat again and you're like, oh, this happened to me during the war. Like, exactly. you know, you kind of just have your moments where it could happen. And he even says it right here, like, this is a direct quote from him. He, he says, one may ask me why I've remained silent about my observations for so long. And he says, the answer is very easy to give. I find myself in the frustrating position that my superior simply did not pass on my observations. As for that, I think it's probable that even I did not quite believe the significance of what I had seen and that the incident was pretty much lost in the depths of my thoughts and mind until the recent news from Loch Ness at last Mm. revivified the memories of my experience and aroused my interest again. And of course, during the war itself, we ultimately had a lot more to do than marine zoological research. Indeed. Yeah, you're trying to stay alive, right? Yeah. So I, I can uh, sympathize with that. And and again, right, yeah, like maybe he's just, like I said already, he's just latching on to the cultural zeitgeist of the moment. And I, I'm really glad you said that because that brings me to my final point, latching on to the cultural zeitgeist of the moment and the idea that this is coming out in tandem with ideas at Loch Ness. To me, the, to me, that is used by skeptics or would be used by skeptics to to against Forstner, right? And like we've talked about that with Nick, like it's the height of all this. People are into monsters. People are talking about sea monsters and all this stuff. And then, of course, the classic photo of the Loch Ness Monster deemed to be a fake years later and various other fakes and, you know, false accounts and what have you. But we still have reports of strange things happening in Loch Ness. Do I believe there's a plesiosaur-like creature in there? No, but there have been video, there's been video and imagery caught of what appears to be like an eel, a large eel-like creature, which is totally plausible. There's massive eels in Lake Crescent on the east coast of Canada, where there's supposedly a sea monster type thing as well. So the idea of there being, 
nothing in Loch Ness isn't a thing. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone should look at this case and be like, Forstner was just inspired by this. Mm, no, and then years yeah. later, it's like, yeah, that photo was proved to be wrong, but there's still strange things going on there. I don't know. I just, mm-hmm. I wanted to mention that because yeah. it used to be an estuary to the ocean and yada, yada, yada. Like, there's so much more <laughs> to touch on in that regard. I don't think that should be used against him. Just the timing of it all. It's just funny me, Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah? You glossed over the best part. Well, I mentioned the bisque. <laughs> <laughs> Yada, yada, yada episode. Yeah, that's right. So that's my final thought, I think. I am leaning towards the idea that Forstner did genuinely see something. And whether or not it was a misidentification or something that we just don't think still exists, but maybe does. Mm -hmm. Or like Nick said, too, like there's so many things out there that we straight up haven't seen that exist. Also, there's the idea that like it was like 90 plus percent or even more than that of creatures that formerly existed we would never even know because they don't exist in the fossil record so if there's things still alive today that we don't we only have their bones and stuff like the whale he mentioned Mm -hmm. what about the things that may still exist that we never ever knew existed at all we haven't found anything yet there's still part of that like 90 plus percent of what hasn't been found in a fossil record that might still be lurking and we haven't seen them because i would imagine like obviously you need the perfect conditions for fossils to be created and a lot of the times that doesn't exist in the world yeah. and especially if you're a marine animal like you know what i mean like yeah. a lot of the marine fossils we have are in places that used to be yes. oceanic and are now on the surface and perhaps this just hasn't been the case i thought that was so fascinating i can't remember what we were watching i think it was on discovery science the other day and they were talking about how all of these uh, fossil records that are found in the gobi desert are there because the gobi at that point had the perfect conditions that aren't really easily found in the world so it's kind of like right time right place and i can't remember what the stat was but it was like just a fraction just a minuscule amount of the actual um, species that have existed on the earth's surface throughout its entire history are represented in the official fossil record so that's an important thing there's so many gaps in our knowledge there's so many monsters that we have Mm -hmm. yet to discover and i use the word monster not in a negative way because we love monsters we just want to find monsters and i I guess uh, what's the quote from dina it's like (laughs) humans are just monsters that are restrained under a thin veil of social (laughs) norms (laughs) all the superstar quotes are starting to come out so i mean yeah we're down to the end here i believe that there is so much we haven't discovered obviously in the ocean steps i mean that's just sort of an understatement andrew like captain obvious type of statement (laughs) but i i i'm buying forstner's account to an extent and there are definitely undiscovered creatures that i can't wait to find out what these massive entities are that's where i'm at that's where i'm at with this honestly yeah i i definitely agree with all that and i'm not gonna sit here and make my own armchair conclusions definitively anything this way that way but (laughs) out of the three that we discussed i feel like he definitely has uh, the most credibility lending to his account and i think uh it's just fascinating to think like like nick said too it's like you know being the hardcore skeptic is no fun and i don't really like to be that even though sometimes i do feel like i'm more of a a scully to your molder (laughs) but we need that we kind of need some balance yeah you know we want to know what you guys think though absolutely because this is a lot of crazy and we want to just yeah we want to hear your thoughts and opinions and uh 
Totally. If you guys have anything to add to this too. Yeah, send send us an other. email. Like we love getting your emails. Like mm-hmm. I say on, on every episode, that's it's great when we get the individual emails. So it's into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. You can comment on this episode as well, like wherever you listen to your podcast and leave us a review, five star reviews. Click that subscribe button and leave us a five star review. It really helps uh, other people find the show and helps into the portal grow bigger, which is all because of you guys. Mm-hmm. And join us on Facebook if you haven't and you have Facebook at Into the Portal Podcast. Come follow us on Instagram at Into the Portal podcast there as well and don't forget to follow the network at strange pods and straightupstrange.com where there's an awesome lineup of shows that's only growing and growing and of course we've had nick join us as well in the network as a uh, who's going to help us uh, be producing some really cool stuff he's also an amazing artist so i wanted to mention that too before we leave here thank you so much again to nick for coming on today uh, for the show you You can find nick's work with uh, the link below it's a link tree link to all of the stuff that nick does his uh, public Publications, his T public artwork and uh, and all that stuff. So th- thanks so much again to Nick and make sure you guys go check that out. Also, massive thank you to our producers, Nightwing. Oh. I don't even know. Like I'm gonna come up with a like come up with a sound effect for that because that's just badass. No, a swoop. Like a, a swoop. swoop. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, Adam K, man, you're the best. And Stanley C, what's up, man? Thank you guys so much for supporting and produce, helping us produce the show. And to all of our Patreon supporters, thank you guys and so all much. All of our listeners out there, you guys are the best. Of course, <laughs> the absolute best listeners in the world. So as always, thank you guys so much for listening to Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bizarre. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.